Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of Jermaine Anderson, on her own behalf and on behalf of all other Beaver Lake Cree Nation beneficiaries of Treaty Number no. 6 and Beaver Lake Cree Nation against Her Majesty the Queen in right of the province of Alberta et al. For the appellant, Jermaine Anderson, Carrie Brooks, and Robert James Cusey. For the intervener, Alberta Prison Justice Society, Avnish Nanda. For the intervener chiefs of Ontario, Senwung Luk and Julia Brown. For the intervener assembly of Manitoba chiefs, Carly Fox. For the intervener Indigenous Bar Association in Canada, Alisa Lombard. For the intervener Treaty, Treaty 8 First Nations of Alberta, Kate Gunn and Bruce McIver. For the intervener, Eco-Justice Canada Society, Andra Azevedo, David Kahn, and Margot Venton. For the intervener, Advocate Society, Melanie Gaston and Kelly Trois. For the intervener, Anishinaabek Nation, Guy-Régin-Bal, and Alissa Flaherty-Spence. For the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen in right of the province of Alberta, Aldo Argento, Larry Mason, and Sonny Mann. For the respondent, Attorney General of Canada, Francois Joyal, John Provart, and for the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Heather Cochrane, and Jacqueline Hughes QC. Carrie Brooks. Thank you. Chief Justice, Justices, this appeal involves an application for an advanced costs order. I'll start with a brief opening describing the key issue and dispute and how it was dealt with in the courts below. I'll focus the rest of my submissions explaining why we say the case management judge properly understood and applied the test to Beaver Lake circumstances and how the Court of Appeal did not. I'll address the Court of Appeal treatment of the settlement funds and the order itself. Now in the underlying litigation, Beaver Lake claims that the core promise in Treaty 6 that it would be able to continue its way of life has been seriously undermined by the cumulative effects of industrial development and settlement. That issue is profoundly important, not only to Beaver Lake, but to the public at large, as it addresses the legal limits on the Crown's ability to authorize land use that impacts treaty rights, but it also requires very expensive litigation. This appeal raises the narrow but important question of how should the courts determine if an impoverished First Nation genuinely cannot afford the cost of litigation as required by this court in Okanagan and Little Sisters. Now there is no disagreement that an applicant who cannot meet its basic needs and finance the litigation is impecunious because in the language of Okanagan endorsed by Little Sisters, the party cannot then genuinely afford the litigation. The real dispute is on the approach to basic needs in the context of a First Nation government managing poverty. And there's also a sub-issue of how exhaustive the evidence must be in detailing those basic needs. Now we say that the court must realistically assess the obligations and burdens on First Nation governments as they relate to the specific First Nation, including by looking at their obligations to their members, the Crown and third parties, the restrictions on the funding they receive, the limits they face to generate revenue, 
And in the case of Beaver Lake, a very rural community, the persistent structural deficits that they face in basic needs like housing, health, em employment, education, food security, and basic infrastructure. This is what is required by a realistic assessment in the context of a First Nation government. So, Ms. Brooks, Ms. Brooks, I'm sorry to interrupt you. All of those elements that you enumerate, uh, are you asking us to say that there should be a presumption when an advanced forecast is asked by a First Nation that basic needs are not met? No. Uh, we are not asking, asking for, for a presumption. Any presumption that basic needs are not met. Um, the test obviously needs to be applied to the specific applicant in every circumstances. What we are saying is that in terms of assessing uh, whether or not basic needs are in fact met or whether any, any funds that may potentially be available to be used for the litigation, uh, that the court take a contextual approach to understanding uh, what those basic needs are and whether in fact they, they can be met and ultimately whether or not the, the First Nation can both finance the litigation and meet the basic needs of its community. And we say that the Chief, uh, that the Justice Brown, who was the case management judge for seven years uh, uh, over this case, she undertook that realistic approach. And she found that Beaver Lake has funds that in theory could be used for litigation, but those funds had to be weighed against the community's pressing needs. And she found further that without advanced cost award, Beaver Lake would be forced to choose between litigation and the basic necessities of life that most citizens take for granted. That's at paragraph 66. And she concluded that such a choice would be manifestly unjust. And it's important to note that she made that finding on the basis of a record that to our knowledge was far more extensive than any other record on advanced costs. It was over 5,000 pages. It included 17 affidavits, nine cross-examinations, two expert reports, financial statements, trial balances that showed every band right. debit How, however, however, the volume of documents, I mean, I've been down this road before where governments have said, look, there's more information provided than it's ever been available. And what it amounts to is a, a document dump. It's the significance of the documents. I mean, 100 pages carefully drawn is worth 10,000, is worth more than 10,000 pages of scattered and undirected information. So saying there's a large volume of materials, maybe it'll impress some people, but what its content is and whether it, it addresses effectively the criteria and meets the requirements, I think that's really what's important. Yes, thank you, Justice Rowe, and we, we agree. We say that, uh, that the, the evidence here was demonstrated both qualitatively and quantitatively that although Beaver Lake had funds that in theory could be legally diverted to the litigation, that the case management judge was on solid ground in finding that they were needed for the community to meet its basic needs. And, and there was extensive evidence and, and, and we complied with the, with the requests from the respondents to produce, to produce an extensive amount of records uh, and evidence and every single expenditure that the, that the ban made was carefully scrutinized and examined. Um, 
And, and But we say that just to know that the case management judge had before her, because there is a question about whether or not the evidence was sufficient here, that she did have before her ample qualitative and quantitative evidence demonstrating how the nation was an incredibly impoverished community and how it was using the funds to address that, uh, that poverty. And we point out that, of course, in Little Sisters, uh, at paragraph 49, her analysis, the trial judge's analysis on advanced costs doesn't involve inherently factual and it is inherently a discretionary inquiry. Uh, it's an exercise of the equitable jurisdiction of the court. It's generally insulated from appellate review and can only be set aside if it's based on an error in principle or is plainly wrong. Now, the Court of Appeal overturned her order well, okay, because it disagreed. Is, is that accurate? Because as I read Little Sisters and Okanagan, the test was formulated as a three-part test, only one component of which is at issue in this case. And yes. if, as a matter of law, the three components of the test are met, then that gives rise to a discretion. But the discretion does not arise until the components of the test are met. And therefore, I think it I don't read it as saying, well, the whole decision is discretionary in its nature, and therefore, unless there's an error in principle, um, you know, that's the relevant standard of review. A legal test is Hausen and Nicolaisen. The exercise of discretion, it, it's a different formulation, which I think you've accurately described. But I'm, I, I guess what I'm saying is that when I read uh, the, the jurisprudence, I see two steps, each of which, oddly enough, in this circumstance gives rise to a different standard of review. Yes, thank you, Justice Rowe. And we agree that those conditions are absolute conditions. The court has been very clear that this is a very narrow jurisdiction that the court has and that there are onerous and demanding conditions that must be met before the court can exercise ultimately its ultimate discretion about whether this case is sufficiently special enough that it merits the award of advanced cost. However, Within understanding impecuniosity, there is going to be an inherently factual analysis that the case management judge is going to have to undertake that involves balancing a number of different factors. And the case management judge, as directed by the court in Okanagan and Little Sisters, is entitled to consider all relevant factors. And so we say within that balancing that she's doing within the context of the impecuniosity test, provided she meets the legal threshold of necessity, uh, that is still a mixed question of fact and law. And so it is um, one that still requires deference to her. But we do agree that there is an absolute condition and that when she's undertaking that, and I say she, the case management judge here, is undertaking that analysis, that she has to be convinced that Beaver Lake meets that threshold of necessity, which is defined by basic needs. So that is, our, there is available funds that in her, in, and when she talks about available funds, it's also important to note that she's referring to funds that are unrestricted. That is, they could be legally diverted to the litigation, but that has to be weighed against Beaver Lake's pressing needs um, is, is a word that's used by Okanagan. Pressing needs is a word that's used by um, Kiwaitin and uh, and in, in, um, in the case management judges or basic needs, pressing needs, basic needs, the threshold is necessity, it's defined by basic needs and, and the case management judge has to be satisfied that the available funds are required in order to satisfy those basic needs. 
And really, we say that that's what the Court of Appeal failed to do. Uh, that the Court of Appeal said because Beaver Lake has some funds um, beyond government funding, that it cannot be impecunious. And it really just looked at one side of the story here. It then went on to characterize Beaver Lake's choices, as it described them, for the, for the available funds, which again are the, legally, the funds that could be legally diverted to the litigation, as simply discretionary policy choices, and as opposed to them being used for basic needs. And it did this largely on an erroneous conclusion that there was no evidence demonstrating that government funding is or will be insufficient to meet Beaver Lake's needs, and that's at paragraph 29. And as I'll show, that's simply not correct. The evidence amply demonstrated that Beaver Lake has substantial deficits in basic needs, and that supported the case management judge's finding that Beaver Lake cannot finance the litigation at the rate required without compromising its basic needs. And not only we say did the Court of Appeal have no basis to interfere with the case management judge decision, but the Court of Appeal's application of the Okanagan test was fundamentally flawed in that it did not undertake the contextual analysis required by the test to properly determine if, in fact, Beaver Lake genuinely could not afford the litigation. And I'd like to just move uh, in sorry. my submission. I'm sorry to, to interrupt. Yeah. I want to ask you, is there anything in the evidence, not uh, 1,000 pages, but was there anything presented into the evidence to say, here is our strategic plan uh, for the basic needs we are planning to, uh, uh, the money we want to spend on our basic needs for the next three years, for instance, at the time of the hearing before the case management judge? Right, thank you, Justice Cote. The, the strategy of the nation, which was shown in the evidence and which the band manager and uh, the chief and others spoke to, is to pay for the cost to operate their programs. And what we see here, and I'm gonna take you through the funds to really explain the sort of complicated um, analysis actually that the, that the nation has to go through to find out how are they going to just fund their programs? Because the evidence showed that the federal funding is not enough that the, that the nation must supplement or subsidize those programs with its own money. In fact, it draws down on its capital. It takes money from its capital at Ottawa to cover the shortfalls. And it does this in, in, uh, on, in an ongoing way because it's chronically underfunded in its programs. Now, its strategy was that when it receives, and this is a very recent, um, recent uh, financial revenue source for the nation, but when it started to receive this money in the form of IBAs, and I'm going, to, I'm going to explain how this works for the nation, but when it started to receive it, the strategy it had is that we are going to invest this so we can have secure revenue to get out of this chronic shortfall that we're in where we have to draw down our capital because our capital is being depleted. It will soon be emptied and we will have no money to subsidize these programs that the community desperately needs. So their plan is operational. It's to make sure that they have the revenue source that they need to subsidize these programs. And I'd like to elaborate. I have another question, Ms. Brooks. I tried yes. to find in the evidence because this is one of the requirements in uh, coming from Okanagan and Little Sisters that uh, somebody who is going through a litigation like the one here uh, has to look out for other options to finance the litigation. So I tried to find something into the evidence about uh, attempts to get loans from a bank or 
something, for instance, we know that there are some companies uh, doing third-party uh, funding litigation. So was there any, uh, anything in the evidence regarding that? Yes, thank you, Justice Cote. The, the evidence, actually, there was a lot of evidence on the efforts that the ban had made to secure other funding sources. Um, and initially, when the ban first, um, first filed this action in 2008, um, it actually it sought pro bono uh, counsel, and there was actually pro bono counsel from England um, who, uh, who offered to uh, to do this case on a pro bono basis, that was opposed by the Crown and ultimately an application was made and, and that council didn't have a right of audience. The nation then went out and sought the assistance of an of a organization called Raven and, and Raven formed as a result of the efforts that it was making on behalf of Beaver Lake to search out every single potential third-party <laughs> funding source it could. Beaver Lake's case actually, because, uh, because of Raven's effort, it was able to secure some funding from a cooperative bank in England. The, the case itself then took, had, a, uh, had a sort of strong international interest and presence, and Beaver Lake was able to secure through grants, through uh, private donors, through a whole range of different platforms that it used to try to get third-party funding sources, was able to secure $1.3 million ultimately over the course of this litigation. Now the evidence from the, the folks that were responsible for helping Beaver Lake search out and identify and find potential money for this litigation gave evidence that those efforts um, are, are waning because there is donor fatigue uh, and uh, folks just aren't prepared to continue to, to contribute to the litigation. Can I ask you um, something? Can I yes. ask you something about the Raven funding? Because I, I couldn't kind of nail this down from my review of the record. I can't tell whether that 1.3 million was available at the time of Justice uh, Brown making her order. And of course, the, 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 the reason for that is it doesn't appear in the financial statements because it went to your firm uh, directly. So it would be helpful for me to know whether you're holding on to the funds for a later date, in which case those funds are available to finance this litigation, or whether it had already been spent, in which case it's not available. But that's, right. and, and that's also, by the way, the kind of thing that it would have been good to have on the record before Justice Brown, so she would know that as well. Uh, thank you, Justice Brown. It actually was on the record, and it's also enclosed in our condensed brief at tab 15, okay. uh, where the, um, the funds that have been provided by Raven and the funds that, that Beaver Lake has um, put towards the litigation are accounted for year by year. Um, they're not funds that are we that it got as a lump sum and we're holding uh, in trust. The nation had to um, approve uh, the expenditures. Obviously, so, so they they've been spent by the oh, time sorry. they've been spent by the time of just of the hearing. Sorry, the, yes, they were spent. Okay, so they were yes. unavailable. They were there. There was nothing left. There's nothing left. Okay, they're spent. Raven did, um, and this is in the evidence. Did push when Beaver Lake. Um, realized that it, after 12 years, or at that point, 10 years of, of um, trying to push this litigation ahead with the limited resources that it did have, and it was very clear that it was just unable to keep pushing this litigation forward um, at the rate that is required. This is a case um, about cumulative effects. It is a case that's going to require elder evidence. These are things that, as time goes on, the evidence becomes is no longer available, and the cumulative effects and the erosion of its rights worsen. So Beaver Lake, in looking at the contribution that, that it was trying to make to push this ahead, 
recognizing it just couldn't sustain the litigation. Um, and, and Raven then made one last push to help assist Beaver Lake in bringing this application forward. Um, but, but the short answer, and I'm sorry I didn't start with that, is no, the funds, there is no uh, Raven funds uh, that can be used to continue to finance this litigation right, right now. And Ms. Brooks, uh, the first yes. judge in paragraph uh, 58 of her reasons uh, said that there could be, uh, there is a, she says, I understand that low interest loans may be uh, available through First Nations Finance Authority. Was there any funds or any attempts to get such uh, loans? So the, that, that, those loans are not for funding litigation. Um, they have to be directed toward community, um, certain community development uh, purposes. And in terms of the, you know, she does note there, she says there may be collateral, but that has to be weighed against her other finding that in fact the collateral she's referring to is illiquid. And my friends, um, made an argument before her that Beaver Lake is uh, a partner in a limited partnership with six other First Nations. It's an oil, um, oil field service company and they provide employment for the First Nations that are members. And so there was some suggestion that that could be used as collateral for a loan, but she then actually found that that is illiquid. They can't sell their interest in it because you can only sell it to another First Nation and there's no monetary value to the First Nations. They just want to be part of it so their members can have jobs. Um, so there was, the, the loan is not a realistic option for, for the nation. The, there's also evidence from the nation about them being able to assume a loan of $5 million and, and how that level of debt would be unsustainable for the nation. So I did want to focus on, uh, because this case does raise the question about, uh, or at least the case management, or the Court of Appeal said that there was not any evidence that the government funding was not sufficient, um, and assumed that because there is government funding that any of the other funds um, that were identified could then be uh, reallocated to the litigation. Um, what I would like to do just by way of roadmap in, in terms of addressing, addressing that, is talk about, about the key findings that she made that support, uh, that are supported by the record uh, and that enabled her to find that the funds, while theoretically are available, were being used or needed to support Beaver Lake's basic needs. And so I'd like to address them if I can in this sequence um, <clears throat> because they do uh, interrelate to each other. But first, her finding of undeniable poverty. Uh, and the pressing need to, to reduce its devastating effects on the community. Second, her findings of the sources of revenue for Beaver Lake to meet the basic needs of its community. Third, the Ottawa Trust. It's also referred to as the IOGC. Um, and to show how, although theoretically available, she properly determined they are needed for operational shortfalls. And then I'll address the Heritage Trust. And finally, the IAIR count. <clears throat> And then I will address the settlement money um, and the order itself. And, and I, uh, in walking you through or taking you through these key findings that are supported by the record, um, my hope is just to show you that her conclusion that Beaver Lake was impecunious uh, was based on a, an appre a deep appreciation of the reality of Beaver Lake's poverty and the real complexities that Beaver Lake faces in trying to, to meet the challenges that are posed by this poverty. And ultimately, I'll argue that there can't be any real serious argument that, uh, that, the, that the so-called available funds are enough 
to address these desperate shortfalls that the nation has for its basic needs. And when you see the depth of its needs, it's obvious that even if they emptied all of their accounts, which they cannot do, their basic needs still would not be met. Um, and in the end, this is really a complaint by the Crown about how the nation is using its funds to address its needs, and that ultimately it's not um, f using its funds faster to address the need. And but may I ask you, when, when you're going through, when you're going through um, uh, your, th those findings, at some point, I don't know whether it's now, I'd like you to address what the Court of Appeals said when they took the position that there, the, the pressing um, social needs of the nation have never been identified or costed. And Thank I'd you. like your, your response to that. Thank you, um, Justice Martin, and I will address that now. So she did make these two key findings that Beaver Lake, in paragraphs 30 and 60, that Beaver Lake is undeniably impoverished with substantial deficits in housing infrastructure with high levels of unemployment and social assistance, and said these are all pressing needs which demand solutions. And then, of course, she also said at paragraph 60, which is the one line that the Court of Appeals selects that the band had many pressing infrastructural and social needs. But it's important to note, uh, and Justice Martin, this addresses your question, that although dealt briefly in her reasons, there is a very lived reality and a lot of pain behind these words. And there's a very, very real and human experience of the deep structural poverty that was heartbreakingly described in the affidavits by the members, by elders, by youth, and members of the administration team. And we do set these out in our par uh, the consequences of this, of this grinding poverty for this nation is set out in our factum. But because the funds that I want to take you to can only really be understood against the backdrop of these pressing demands, I'll just very briefly but summarize okay, bef a bit of this you, evidence. Before you and, get I, into that, I mean, you've yes. painted a picture it seems to me of profound structural problems and what is being put forward is an ad hoc solution to deal with some of the consequences of that. But when you take the proposed ad hoc solution and you apply it to the hundreds of indigenous communities across the country who might have various claims with of a meritorious nature, you end up coming up with a systemic solution which is administered by the courts, but in the guise of an ad hoc or exceptional arrangement. And, and I just have this sense when I was reading Little Sisters that the court said, we don't want to go there. That's not our role. If, if, if someone is to fulfill that role, that's a governmental role. And yet we're being asked to, to, to embark upon the pathway that the court said should be avoided. Thank you, Justice Rowe. And I, and we don't, I don't agree with that. Um, I, I understand the court's concern um, about maintaining the very narrow jurisdiction that it has over these cases. Uh, to award these exceptional orders. Um, and I think it's, and, and, and Okanagan does set the parameters for how that jurisdiction needs to be exercised. And those conditions are very onerous. And impecuniosity is one of them. And, and there are others. 
obviously the case has to be exceptional and special enough. And we saw Little Sisters did not succeed because it did not meet that exceptionality requirement and the requirement of, of, um, of special, uh, special enough cases. And that's the legal answer to that question. This is really about in assessing impecuniosity, taking a realistic approach to what a basic needs means for First Nation government. Now, there may or may not be other uh, First Nations that um, you, that qualify for for advanced costs because they meet the impecuniosity test. But we would caution the court to avoid um, not taking a realistic approach because of a concern that there are First Nations who live in poverty. Um, and and the reality is that that's uh, a function of our history in this country and that the court still must apply this test in a way that's realistic to the applicant when the applicant uh, and the applicant has to prove it. This is not about some generalized poverty case. This is about proving that the funds, if there are funds that could potentially theoretically be diverted to the litigation, they must be used to satisfy the, the threshold of necessity to satisfy the basic needs. And in this particular community, and I do just want to spend a few a few minutes, just if I could, just describing a bit of the of the complexities. And I appreciate the court could, may. Could, uh, and, and, and I don't I don't want to stop you from doing that, but but I just want to pull you back to Justice Martin's um, question. It's not one you have to answer now because it contemplated as you go through these sort of funds and 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 yes. through the identification of the basic needs. Um, she also asked you to to address the Court of Appeals concern that need these needs haven't been not just identified but but costed because yes. I'll, I'll, I'll be straight with you the difficulty that I have is I think everyone agrees in fact I think I think um, Mr. Siebert agreed in questioning that the financial statements don't reflect those needs or future needs or the costs for them and so it's it's I guess yes. I want to signal to you that it's not just enough to say they have these needs. We have to know um, that the funds that are available, or the chamber's judge had to know that the funds that uh, are available weren't sufficient to meet those needs. Thank you, Justice Brown. And and yes, I will get I will address that now. I'm going to talk about the the record as it supported her findings in that respect. Um, and and while I do that, I'll also refer to the cost of these things uh, and also ask that the court keep in mind too that um, the level of, of um, this isn't to avoid scrutiny of the cost, but just the obligations that that might impose on a First Nation to cost out their poverty for an advanced cost order. But I'll, I'll, I'll address that as I move through this, but I, I, I wanna just describe a, a little bit about what is on the record before her because it, the evidence we say is so overwhelming uh, for this nation that they're, if they were to spend every penny that was available, that they couldn't meet their basic needs. Um, and, the, and, the, and the conditions, in describing the conditions that the community faces, members uh, described first and foremost the hardship on them of not being able to access the lands and resources that they need to sustain their culture and their livelihood uh, as promised by the treaty. And this is critical because this shows the sort of complexity that Beaver Lake faces here because the members are saying we can't go out 
and, and, and harvest and hunt and trap and fish in the way we could as promised by the treaty and as before. And that's what gives rise to the litigation, but it's also what gives rise to this dependence that the members have on these banned programs. Uh, because as one elder put it, aside from being this being who we are, people would starve here were it, were it not for the country food. Uh, members described how they have limited employment opportunities. The band manager said that 70% of members don't have enough work. Training opportunities are extremely limited. Members described how families live off of $400 a month. Almost half the nation has to access an emergency loan program that's offered by the band. And these personal deficits increase the obligations that the, that the Beaver Lake leadership have to provide for these basic necessities that are provided through the programs that it has to subsidize. And members talked about, uh, for example, living in overcrowded houses. There's just simply not enough homes. There's over 50 families waitlisted, and the most of the existing houses are falling apart. A majority of them require serious uh, repairs to remedy deficiencies like mold, cracking foundations, exposed electrical systems. The ban said it's a year behind from members for housing maintenance. 20 houses require immediate repairs. And at the time of the application, eight homes had failed the health and safety standards and need to be replaced. Now there's evidence that a home costs $200,000 on this reserve. So that alone, just replacing that eight those eight homes that are currently failing to health and safety is 1.6 million. Access to clean water is an issue. The government gave Beaver Lakes water quality a failing grade. For many people, they get their water by truck because they don't have access to the pipe system. And at the time of the hearing, that truck broke unexpectedly and the nation had to get its capital money. They had to request ministerial permission to get money to fix that, to get that cost. There was evidence about the sewage lagoon was overflowing. Canada only very recently agreed to provide the funds and that's costing up to 8 million. So it demonstrates the scope of the cost involved in fixing these types of deficits. Another important, um, and uh, another, and I'm almost through this, but another important um, need for the band is they wanna provide high school for their students. They wanna adv provide advanced language program. They'd love to have a Cree immersion program. And that's very stressful for the high school, the students that have to leave the reserve to go off reserve to go to their high school. They don't have the financial capacity to do that. There's, the school itself is 38 years old. It needs more repairs and students for replacement. And, and Justice Brown, on your cost, to, to estimate the cost of the school, the government, the Canada said it'll cost $100,000 to perform a feasibility study. That's the type of cost then that the Court of Appeal would have the nation incur in order to bring forward um, costing out its needs. The healthcare center is over capacity. It needs expanded. It needs to be maintained. There's a long list of services that the band can't find that are desperately needed, including relating to fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, elderly home care, culturally appropriate preventive care. Almost all of the affiants spoke of the mental health crisis faced by the nation. And the devastation of this crisis is profoundly tragic. In the two to three years before the application, the community saw six of its people die. Five of them were youth. No cost can be easily calculated to address that state of emergency. And really, <clears throat> this is just a high level summary of some of the deep deficits that are faced. What we heard is from Elder Al Lehman, who was the former chief for 34 years, and he started this action. He's now 78. 
he may not uh, see its, its conclusion. He explained the connection, and I think this is important to, to appreciate this, the suffering that's experienced by their community. And he described it in this way. He said, the biggest change happened with the loss of our freedom and sovereignty from the changes to the land. We depend on the land. If the land is sick, we become ill too. In my lifetime, we went from being a place of being able to take care of ourselves and our families by relying on the land to having to rely on government programs, which don't and can't meet our needs. It was because of this hurt and loss that many of our people turned to alcohol, which made things even worse for our families here. The changes to our land are forcing our assimilation. It's against our will, and this has had a significant impact on our culture and the well-being of our community. So it's this type of evidence that was before the case management judge, and it led her to find, as she did in those two paragraphs, that Beaver Lake was in undeniable poverty. And this is a very tangled web of poverty that is difficult to, to, to escape. It requires very co complex um, solutions. This, but this, and, and as Justice Rowe has pointed out, um, but they are just in crisis management here. This is a band that doesn't have the resources to address these complex solutions. Um, <clears throat> and despite this record, the Court of Appeals interfered with her assess the case management judge assessment that Beaver Lake could not both finance the litigation and meet its basic needs in large measure because it presumed the adequacy of government funding. And, <clears throat> and so with respect, I have to say that that is just not correct. The actual evidence of Beaver Lake's basic needs is that they were not met even with the government's chosen level of funding. Uh, and that was just overwhelm overwhelming that this nation is facing day-to-day -day crisis management. <clears throat> we, did produce, we did say in our factum that, there, that this should not be surprising. We're not asking for a presumption at all from this court that government funding is inadequate. We are just saying it wasn't an appropriate presumption for the Court of Appeal to make. Uh, and in fact, in making that type of presumption, um, it really it has this as another significant risk, which is risking equating government funding choices as a proxy for Indigenous needs. And that's to say that the very then lived and real experiences of Indigenous communities are simply what the government says they are, as expressed through its budget decisions. And we say that despite all of what we've learned about the history of governmental decisions about Indigenous people needs that they've done to this community, that that is just, that is just inappropriate. Uh, and, but, but more so is just the evidence in this case, and that's really the key, is that the evidence in this case showed that that funding was not adequate to meet the basic needs. Ms. And uh, Ms. Brooks, <laughs> would it be fair to say that your position is that the um, approach to impecuniosity in the first uh, element of Okanagan is intrinsically normative. It's not an accounting exercise, it's a normative exercise, and that's already reflected in the words, genuinely cannot afford to pay for the litigation, no other realistic option. So it is a normative exercise, it's whether they should be required to spend these, the money on these, uh, uh, on litigation or these other priorities, and that the, really what the Court of Appeal did is when it said an applicant that has funds but prefers to spend them on other priorities is not impecunious, is really engaging in accounting rather than norm a normative exercise. Is that a fair way of summarizing your position? Yes, uh, Justice Jamal, that is, uh, that is right. And, uh, and, that the court of and that the Court of Appeal in talking about 
Beaver Lake's um, needs as uh, preferences, or we, we see that language in, in the respondents affidavit too, really doesn't appreciate that in fact, Beaver Lake's choices were directed to its basic needs. Um, and the only reason why uh, the Court of Appeal was able to find that they weren't is because of this presumption around federal funding. And so this is, uh, does require looking at more than just bookkeeping entries. It requires a contextual analysis. That's what Okanagan contemplates, and that's what we say the, the case management here was doing. Now, in, in just detail... Ms. Can Ms. I Ms. Brooks, yes. sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but just to follow up on Justice Jamal's question, and in fairness to the Court of Appeal, there, 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 there was a disagreement as to what funds were available to meet the needs, what funds were restricted or unrestricted. I mean, the obvious example is some of the funds in trust, the, in particular the Heritage Trust, the, the Court of Appeal took the view that from an accounting point of view, and I suppose also from a normative point of view, a litigant can't voluntarily tie up assets in a trust and then claim impecuniosity. And, and so, so there really is a... Yeah a debate that involves looking at what is available to meet those needs. There's a debate as to what those needs are, but how, did the Court of Appeal get that yes. wrong too? <laughs> um, yes, thank you, Justice. The, the, the answer to that is it depends. It, it's, and, and in this case, the evidence before her was, and this goes also to Justice Cote's point about the strategy that the nation had, the evidence before her was that the monies that were being deposited into the Heritage Trust, which come from these IBA agreements, and, 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 and I just want to pause on that because that is also important for how these funds are generated because the IBA agreements are negotiated with companies after Beaver Lake has established that there's um, been adverse effects by the proposed development. So then it enters into agreements if the company is willing and, and you know, they, they really do have the power in this relationship unless Beaver Lake opposes the project. But they enter into these agreements. The negotiations that support those agreements are with the IAIR department funds. So this is why I'm saying there's a bit of a complex mix here of how these funds work together. And I'll just explain it, explain it, Frida. I was going to move through it in sequence, but um, so pardon me if, I'm, if, I, if I jump around for a moment here. But the, the, let me just talk about the three funds. So there's the Ottawa Trust, there's the Heritage Trust, and there's the IAIR. And the, the case management judge identified the Ottawa and the IAIR, as we say, theoretically available because there was no legal restrictions for diverting those funds. She found that the Heritage Trust was restricted. Sorry, just out, of just out of clarification, when you're referring yes. to the Ottawa Trust, is that the Indian Oil and Gas Canada Trust? Yes. Okay, thank Pardon you. Pardon me. Yeah, we we yeah. call it, you're right, she refers no, that, to that's, I, I... Yeah, okay. I, just to okay. terminology. Thank you. Yes, thanks. So the... Um, the IBAs um, that have hold the, the money that comes from the IBAs that then gets deposited into the Heritage Trust, which is new, it was four years old, um, have restrictions on them because the companies, um, for all sorts of reasons, uh, say that the, the money has to be used for specific purposes. It can't, for example, be paid to individuals or to staff or to chief and counsel. The companies would want to avoid any perception that they were uh, that they were potentially buying off uh, folks. But in any event, the 
the monies have to be used for community development purposes. So there is that restriction themselves. Now it is the case that the Court of Appeals says, well, can you move money around? Can you move that money somewhere else and free up other money to then be used for litigation? And fair enough. But here the answer to that is no. Uh, Beaver Lake can't because what Beaver Lake is doing is it's using the money from the IOGC, the Ottawa Trust, very heavily using money from that to subsidize the, the programs. And we see that that's, um, and there, it is in our chart, uh, it is in our um, outline yeah. where but, we but, have. But, but uh, what have you're telling charts. us is that as a matter of policy, the band government has decided to commit these funds in a certain way and that in furtherance of that policy they have a self-imposed set of, in, of restrictions on its use. Now I think it's a little difficult for me to accept that you see this, this is beyond their reach. Well it's beyond their reach because they put it beyond their reach. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I, I understand entirely the idea of uh, you know, the, the concept of a heritage fund, I think is a very good idea. But, but it, it is a choice by the band to confine the use of the monies to certain purposes as opposed to being available for the purposes of litigation. And, and it's, it's sort of, a, I find it difficult, to, you seem to be saying, well, they don't really have any choice. Yes, that may be so, because they've already made the choice. So um, it's not as if there were funds which were within the control, say, of the national government, and they, they were only permitted to draw them down for a purpose established under the Indian Act, right? When you would say, well, let's, our, our hands are tied. The federal government has done this to us. Uh, so I, I'm not mm -hmm. taking issue with your factual statement. I'm just saying that I... Personally, I see it in a certain context, and that is, for legitimate reasons, the band is directing funds to purpose A. The consequence is they're not available for purpose B, which is the litigation. Right. Thank you, Justice Rowe. And certainly that is uh, squarely raised by, by the Court of Appeal, and that's the Court of Appeal's concern. But what the Court of Appeal is missing, we say with respect, is that the it's not a policy choice for the purpose of this test if the choice is directed to a basic need because at the end everything is is technically a policy choice and even the government's decision about how much money they're going to give beaver lake or what needs they're going to address and at what level and the risk is assuming that that is somehow an objective measure and anything else that beaver lake's doing amounts to a policy choice so we say that the description of a policy choice here is not entirely helpful. The, 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 the question that the, that the chamber's judge has to answer is, are these funds directed to a basic need? Do they meet the necessary so, threshold of necessity? And we say that they do. And again, it does require understanding how the Beaver Lakes funds interact with each other. And so, I'll, so just again, to elaborate that on the, on the Ottawa Trust yeah. um, account, um, this is capital, and it's in, and and so this is a capital. It does have a revenue that's generated from the interest, but this is capital that the nation is taking out on a regular basis to subsidize programs, and it needs ministerial approval. 
So because it is such a serious thing to take from your capital to subsidize day-to-day -day operations, they're not even spending it on capital expenditures, they're spending it to operationalize their ban programs. And there is a very rigorous statutory process that they have to do to access this capital. It's all laid out in the Indian Act in Section 64. They have to, they have, to have a community vote. The community has to, they have to put forward, we need this capital for salaries, for urgent infrastructure repairs, our truck broke down, we need to pay it. The community has to vote on it. The leadership has to, has to um, then prepare a BCR. The BCR gets submitted, and then the minister has to determine based on its own, it has a manual about the guiding principles that it uses to assess whether or not that expenditure is in fact in the best interest of the band, and then it approves it. So all of the withdrawals that Beaver Lake has been taking from its operational account, or sorry, from its Ottawa account to operationalize its band um, costs for these programs have been approved by the minister. Um, and, and, and I just I just point that out because I think that that approval process also speaks to the legitimacy of these uh, these expenditures and that capital count is declining. They, and, and it just demonstrates Beaver Lake doesn't want to use its capital to pay for its operations and that gives rise to the Heritage Trust. And so what the case management judge is faced with is the question um, uh, of justice or of what you're saying is, are they arbitrarily tying this money up? Is it for some frivolous purpose? Are they saving it to buy a, to put in a swimming pool? Or no, to put no, in no, I did not say that. Please do not oh. say I suggested that they were using it for a frivolous purpose. These are all serious purposes. They're all legitimate concerns. I'm just saying that there's a difference between saying this money is fully beyond our reach because of some uh, arrangement, perhaps under the Indian Act. So some of the funds may be tied up and beyond their ability to access, and others where, as a matter of choice, it's a legitimate choice. It's, it's a choice that it's open to the band to make. I'm not questioning that. But, but the, the, the consequence is that it's, 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 it's therefore not available. And I didn't say anything about swimming pools or anything else. Ms. Brooks, I have a question for you because I see the time is going. Uh, I have two questions for you regarding the terms of the award. First of all, I would like to know how this amount, these amounts, 300,000 for Canada, 300,000 from Alberta, 300,000 for Beaver Lake were determined by uh, the case management judge. And my second question will be, are you aware of any case in our country where such an award of that magnitude with no court control, uh, because it's 300,000 for each uh, party uh, per year, as long as the litigation is, uh, is in existence. So I would like to know if you are aware of it, such uh, advanced cost awards with, uh, I would say, open-ended terms like this one. Thank you, Justice Cote, and, and there are a range of ways in which these orders get structured. They obviously have to be sensitive to the particular case in mind. There's, um, you know, the ch just to answer that question, the Chicolton case, obviously, with the Aboriginal title case, where there, the, what we see there is it is open-ended, recognizing the complexities uh, that the case involves is going to have to be revisited. And in fact, the award was revisited on multiple times. There was multiple costs uh, decisions relating to that war because the case management judge retains ongoing strict supervision over how the how the litigation is progressing. 
Um, and so, and that is all done through a cost administration order, which here is, we haven't got to that yet. She ordered one be, be, uh, be discussed between the parties uh, and that has not yet happened. Um, so all of the structure and the oversight is going to be in that cost administration order. So the structure complaints we say are premature because that's coming. Now the quantum, she, she, no one disputes this case is going to be at least $5 million. And in fact, Canada has submitted on, on, on several occasions that it will far exceed that. And that is the basis for their concern that there is not um, a cap on the award. But really, that makes, we say, a stronger case, first of all, for Beaver Lake's impecuniosity, that the cost could far exceed that amount. But secondly, we now have a trial date. It's two and a half years away. And so if the, if the, if the case, which we say $5 million is a reasonable assessment of what this case is going to cost, it, it, the, there is a trial date. There is an end date in mind. And Beaver Lake wants this case heard. It does not want this case to drag on. It's Canada that stood up at the leave application and told the court it was 12 years away from trial, which puts this case 30 years out from the date it's filed. Beaver Lake wants a trial. It wants to get it heard. It, the complex case plan that, that sets out the schedule for that, uh, if this case is properly resourced, is manageable, is doable. So there is a timeline that's being sent. It will cost, and it's important to keep in mind, in imposing a $300,000 cap, that, that is the bare minimum, uh, and, it, and it caps the public exposure, whereas Beaver Lake is, bears all the financial risk. Just, a, just assuming that the case is $5 million to be heard over the next three or four years, that's $3.5 million a year for this case to, to be properly resourced. It leaves all the exposure to Beaver Lake, um, and the Crowns is capped. At, they never have to pay more than $300,000 a year over the next three to four years when this case resolves, whereas Beaver Lake is potentially going to have to come up with 900000 to to create the shortfall. So the financial risk is on Beaver Lake. She capped the public exposure, we say, um, appropriately. But ultimately, if this court finds that there did need to be more controls, then the remedy is not to vacate the order, but to send it back um, with the appropriate direction to, to provide the appropriate structure. And I did. I don't want to close without talking about the IAR fund, if I could. Sorry, just, be, just before you go there, I apologize. Yes. I know your time's limited, but are you able to give us a definition, a proposed definition of impecuniosity, uh, or uh, that is perhaps different than what has been suggested in the cases like Little Sisters and so on? I mean, because the way I'm hearing you is right now. The bands are being the the band in question has been given a choice. It's kind of a Hobbesian choice: continue to live in a subsistent way, and, and the most you know um, under terrible conditions, or spend the money on the litigation. Now, you know, do you have to get to the point where you say people are starving and? Um, or what? Can you can you give us yes. your definition of what impecuniosity should mean in yes. these circumstances, please? Yes, thank you, um, Justice Moldaver. And the the test we say does not require destitution, and 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 the Court of Appeal ad, agrees with that. But we say that what the Court of Appeal do, does is going to require destitution, and she recognized that because the case management judge expressly said she is not prepared to force the nation 
to either bring the case forward or, or force it into destitution. So the test though is as it says in Okanagan, we do not think it needs to be changed. And it's the genuine afford, can the, can the applicant cannot genuinely afford the litigation and no other realistic option exists for bringing the issue to trial. But then what the test requires the, the, the chamber's judge to do is to determine whether if there is funds that could be legally available to be put to the litigation, whether the use of those funds meets the threshold of necessity and necessity is defined by basic needs and basic needs to, and again, we could drill down on more and more definitions, but the case management judge defines, actually gives us a sense of what basic needs are when she says um, that, the, that it's anything uh, that other citizens would, would take for granted. Clean water, adequate housing, all of the things that we see Beaver Lake suffering from and deficient from. And in the, in the remaining six minutes of my time, subject of course to questions, I just wanted to say about the IAR fund, it does, she says it's 1.4 million. It is important to know this isn't a savings account. This is an account that is used daily by the nation to support consultation. This, the funds that go in here are support consultation activities. This fund is depleted almost every year, sometimes in a deficit as it was in 2018. It's the consultation activities that we say have a constitutional um, imperative to them. And that the, by the Court of Appeal, again, without looking behind the funds and what they're used for, has essentially forced the nation now to choose between consultation, which this court has, has very clearly said that has a legal and constitutional duty to it, and that the First Nation must participate in order for the Crown to discharge its honorable uh, obligations. Yes. But, the, but the Court of Appeal, by failing to recognize that, is forcing the nation into a further unjust choice of having to say, use your consultation money now for um, for uh, for the litigation and Ms. the nation does Ms. use Ms. this Brooks. consultation money yes yes i'm sorry i i understand that point i just want to come back to the issue of basic needs because you said it says anything that other citizens would take for granted is that a sufficient definition i'm just thinking in the context of uh, some of the evidence about cultural survival for example i just want you to help give us yes. um, some more assistance on how you think we should be thinking of basic needs in this context. Thank you. Um, and yes, basic needs, of course, is it will vary depending on who the applicant is. And here we do have a First Nation government um, providing for for its members in a in a in a context um, which which we know the the history in which these communities have formed and the conditions in which they live under. So yes, basic needs has to be contextualized based on who the applicant is. And for a First Nation, that will include other things that are basic and core to their functioning as a First Nation government seeking to maintain its community as a distinct cultural community. And here, just you know, your Justice Kirstanz, your your point was was um, was uh, was timely in that the, the consultation, for example, for an indigenous government is a basic need, and and so it, it it's you can't just say to the First Nation, don't consult. That's a basic need. That's a fundamental basic need of any First Nation government. And, and, and finally, I do just want to comment on this nuance in the Court of Appeal and in, in the respondent's submission on, on the cost and the rate required because they make a further change to the test by saying whether or not the nation can continue 
to fund the litigation without any regard to the rate at which it's needed to actually get heard. So in this case, for example, if the nation continued to pay its 300,000 a year, which formerly was supplemented by, by Raven as well, it would take another 16 and a half years to get this to trial. Um, and so that has to be part of the court's analysis too, is that what is required in terms of um, getting this matter heard. Uh, finally, on the settlement money, uh, we fully acknowledge that these funds are relevant to the issue of advanced costs. The question is by what process should they have been dealt with? And the fact that the Court of Appeal just added them um, to the funds, again, they're just looking at one side of the story and not the other side. And those funds should have been revisited by the case management judge on a proper record that allowed the, uh, the um, expenses at, of the nation and the needs and the costs that they have for those funds to be examined by her or the case management judge to determine whether or not those funds are being directed toward the, toward the, the test of basic needs. You were saying, I think, that the 2.97 was should have been balanced against the fact that the, the needs of the community were, were far greater uh, because of COVID and there were all kinds of problems relating to that and more expenditures and so on. And this should have been dealt with in the context of evidence, real live evidence before a trial judge. I think that's your, one of your that's, concerns. Yes, Justin Moldelaker, that's exactly right. The, the chief and the band manager filed and the finance manager filed evidence only because in the condensed time that, that we had to manage the appeal, that the, um, that the nation had further been in, had financial condition had worsened and that the IAR account was depleted as it always is for consultation and for other professional and legal fees as well. Um, and that, uh, that that Ottawa trust had been depleted to, to under a million now, so almost half of what it was. So finally, um, in, but we do say the proper process was for that to be heard on a proper record before the case management judge. And just in concluding then, the treaty relationship is at the heart of reconciliation between Indigenous people and the Crown. It is in the interest not only of Beaver Lake, but also of the Crown and all Canadians to ensure that that relationship is upheld by reviewing whether the scale of industrial development and settlement in Beaver Lake's territory is constitutional. The respondent and the Court of Appeal talk a lot about choices, but it's critical to remember that Beaver Lake did not make the choice to be in this situation. Alberta and Canada have made the choice to permit extensive development of these lands, which raises the profound legal issue at the heart of this case. Beaver Lake would have preferred to have its lands left alone. Beaver Lake did not choose to make this dispute expensive. The courts have been clear that disputes like this must be resolved at trial on a full record. The respondents have argued unsuccessfully that the claim is so large, so unmanageable, so overwhelming, it raises too many complex issues to even be litigated to which the Court of Appeal replied that Beaver Lake is entitled to access to justice regardless of its scope. I see my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nishnanda. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices of the Supreme Court. Based on the factums filed by the parties, it appears that they are all in agreement that the question of advanced costs should be approached in a functional and contextual manner that takes into consideration the unique circumstances of a litigant. The disagreement, however, uh, stems around how to assess whether a party is impecunious under the test for advanced costs. The Alberta Prison Justice Society intervenes in this appeal on that narrow question and proposes a detailed framework 
for the test uh, to determine impecuniosity under the test for advanced costs. It submits that the confusion uh, between the parties and in the, jurisprudence, in, in the jurisprudence arises from Little Sisters, which introduced the absolute and categorical language of impossibility into the threshold of determining whether an applicant is impecunious. This has led some courts to define impecuniosity to mean and be only satisfied when an, when an applicant, quote, cannot meet the necessities of life and also fund the litigation, close quote. This seems to imply a formalistic approach to determining impecuniosity that requires applicants to be completely destitute to access the mechanism. <clears throat> that understanding seems to be at odds with the policy objectives behind this cost mechanisms, which is to uh, facilitate greater and more robust public interest litigation in Canada. This narrow understanding of impecuniosity seems to undermine the express aims behind this mechanism. And the Alberta Prison Justice Society proposes uh, in its formulation of the approach to impecuniosity, a principled uh, framework to assess whether a party is impecunious or not. And if the court can turn to tab A of our factum, we provide a concise overview of this framework, which I'll now review the court uh, for the balance of my submissions. So the first step in determining impecuniosity is to determine the anticipated costs of the public interest litigant to prosecute uh, this action to finality. And at this stage of the framework, parties should tender a reasonable estimate for the legal fees and disbursements that will be incurred for a court to fairly decide the matter before it. After this is determined, the court would then assess the financial means of an applicant to pay the estimated costs of litigation. And this involves a normative determination of the financial capacity or the capacity of a litigant to fund the litigation. And at the first stage of this analysis is a review of an applicant's uh, expenditures, but also the prioritization of its spending and the rationale for that prioritization. Then, based on the evidence of the applicant, situate the litigation among its spending priorities, determine where exactly the, the litigation fits into the overall scheme of uh, uh, an applicant's uh, spending priorities. Afterwards, the court would determine if an applicant has any surplus financial resources after allocating funds to expenditures that are prioritized ahead of it. Finally, at this stage, uh, the court would establish if the applicant has other avenues to raise funds or can reallocate existing funds to the litigation. And this can involve a determination if uh, fundraising campaigns can be initiated, if uh, parties can tap into uh, the court challenges funds or other programs, or if uh, funds can be reallocated from expenditures of, of lower priority to the litigation. And the final step in the framework is determining whether an applicant can generally not afford to pay for litigation by balancing the budgeted item identified or the balance uh, of the budget identified at step one of the framework with the financial capacity of an applicant to pay for the litigation through the number determined at step two. If there is no shortfall, then the applicant has not met the test for being impecunious and no co advanced cost order will issue. But if there is insufficient funds to finance litigation in full or in part, then the applicant is determined impecunious 
to the extent of that deficiency and advance cost orderable issue for that shortfall. Those are my submissions today, pending any questions from the bench. Thank you very much. Sen Wong Lok. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. On behalf of the Chiefs of Ontario, I wish to make only one key point today about how this court should consider the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in the development of the law of interim costs in order to further the promise of reconciliation contained in Section 35. Reconciliation, as this court has reminded us time and time again, is the fundamental objective of the modern law of Aboriginal and treaty rights, a project in which this court has played a central role. But what is it that requires reconciling? This court has told us again, it's the pre-existence of Aboriginal societies with the asserted sovereignty of the Crown. What does the asserted sovereignty of the Crown mean in practical terms? It means that among themselves, the federal and provincial crowns have taken the exclusive constitutional jurisdiction to raise revenues through natural resource royalties and taxes. As a result, the Crown has unmatched financial resources to spend on litigation. The Crown takes all the revenue from all, the, all of its sources and decides how much it's going to spend on litigation and how much to give to First Nations. But what of the other side of the reconciliation equation, the pre-existence of Aboriginal societies? Often the only way that Indigenous peoples can get recognition for their prior presence is through litigation. By contrast to the Crown, Indigenous peoples do not have any constitutional authority to raise revenue, not even off the very lands where, before the arrival of Europeans, they lived as their forebears had done for centuries. This fundamental mismatch between the Crown and, and Indigenous peoples in the capacity to fund litigation is a systemic barrier to, to reconciliation. It does not take abject poverty for a First Nation to be entirely outmatched by the overwhelming financial capacity of the Crown. The fight is not set up to be fair. And Justice Rowe, as you were alluding to, the problem is systemic. This brings us to the UN Declaration, which Parliament has recently affirmed as a universal human rights instrument with application in Canadian law. Articles 8 and 39 taken together uh, guarantee a robust system that provides effective mechanisms of redress to Indigenous peoples where their rights have been breached and for financial assistance from states in the seeking of that redress. What they add up to is that Indigenous peoples have a right to financial assistance in an effective me mechanism of redress. What it supports in our submission is the establishment of a presumption in Section 35 litigation that the party seeking the interim cost order cannot afford to pay. Now, I, I think I, I, I would expect you will hear from my friends that these UNDRIP obligations are only those of the legislature and not of the courts. I have two points to make in response to that. First is that Parliament has already spoken through the UNDRIP Act and has said that the, that the declaration is a source for Canadian law. And the second point is that Canadian law includes the common law, of which this court is the highest guardian and in which the advance cost order doctrine uh, has, has sprung. 
the common law has had a well-established tradition of using interim cost orders to address systemic barriers to access to justice. The Okanagan test itself arose by analogy to the family law line of cases in which the courts recognized that matrimonial property and support rights often proved illusory for spouses without the means to enforce those rights by litigation. The courts then imposed interim cost orders on the wealthier spouse so that the other spouse might be able to have their day in court. Okanagan merely extended that principle to public law litigation where parties seeking judicial recognition of the rights are opposed by extremely well-resourced governments. What we propose is an extension of that principle to recognize that a relevant measure of, if of impecuniousness is often the relative resources of opposing parties uh, that they bring to litigation. We should presume that the First Nation can't have as much money to pay for the litigation as the Crown, because that's the way our Constitution is set up. This change would also recognize this uh, systemically uneven playing field between Indigenous peoples and governments, and also recognizes that bringing an Okanagan application itself, as we've seen in this case, can be a barrier going through every single actual and potential funding source uh, to prove that those funds are not available. Thank you very much. Uh, I, thank, thank you. Thank you. Cardi Fox. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs proposes an approach to the impecuniosity branch of the advanced cost test that interprets the First Nation applicants' evidence by considering the context and history of the Crown First Nations relationship in a manner that advances the principle of reconciliation. As this court has confirmed in Calder, First Nations are the original inhabitants of what is now Canada. First Nations lived within their own territories with their own governments and laws since time immemorial. While the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs rejects pan-Indigenous generalizations, this prior occupation has resulted in a nation-to-nation -nation relationship between First Nations and the Crown that no other litigant possesses. This relationship is solidified in many instances by treaties founded on agreement between nations for the advancement of a mutually beneficial and shared future. Unfortunately, this nation-to-nation -nation relationship has been dishonored to the advantage of the Crown and settler population and to the detriment of First Nations and their citizens. For much of Canada's history, First Nations laws and culture were prohibited by the Crown's laws and policies, and First Nations were excluded from seeking redress of their claims through the courts. The legacy of colonization and unkept promises by the Crown provides critical context as to the unique access to justice challenges faced by First Nations and the actual ability of the First Nation to pay for litigation. This context is important in determining whether a First Nation can genuinely afford litigation, including what constitutes discretionary spending versus what constitutes basic needs. The purpose of, advanced, of the advanced cost tests and the principle of reconciliation go hand in hand, as both are fundamentally concerned with addressing inequality. As this court has stated in Okanagan, the advanced cost test is concerned with access to justice and the desirability of mitigating severe inequality between the litigants. The principle of reconciliation is similarly aimed at alleviating the tensions between sovereignties that have arisen out of the long-sorted history of colonization, a history that has resulted in the severe disparities that some First Nations face compared with other litigants. Since this court's decision in Okanagan, the principle of reconciliation has evolved and gained prominence in Canadian law, 
It is not simply a guidepost of conduct, but gives rise to substantive obligations. It is now firmly established that the endeavor of reconciliation is a first principle of Aboriginal law and the grounding postulate of Canadian constitutional law. A narrow interpretation of the advanced cost test, which considers the Crown First Nation relationship only in the context of the public importance branch, does not advance the principle of reconciliation. It does not assist with renewing, strengthening, or upholding the nation-to-nation -nation or treaty relationship. It does not mitigate the systemic equality suffered by First Nations. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs submits that the court should seek to uphold reconciliation where possible. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs is not advocating for a preferential test for First Nations or diminishing the exceptional nature of the advanced cost test. The same test for advanced costs would continue to apply. First Nations would need to prove that they have a meritorious case, that it is in the public interest, and that they are impecunious. However, the financial evidence of the applicant First Nation would be interpreted by considering the history and context of the Crown First Nations relationship. This context ensures that the advanced cost test remains an evidence-based inquiry, but one that is not undertaken in a vacuum. The principle that advanced cost applications are exceptional stems from the fact that advanced costs are sourced in public funds. By narrowly interpreting the impecuniosity branch of the test due to concerns with exceptionality, the fact that these public funds have accumulated at the expense of First Nations is disregarded. If this contextual approach results in more First Nations meeting the impecuniosity requirement, it would be a reflection of the disparity in circumstances between the First Nation and the Crown, as well as the First Nation citizens and the broader Canadian society. Ensuring that the advanced cost test recognizes and addresses these disparities advances reconciliation. And subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Alisa Lombard. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices, and friends. I'm here on behalf of the Indigenous Bar Association, which is a not-for-profit federal corporation, and a national association comprised of Indigenous jurists, whose mandate includes promoting the advancement of legal and social justice for Indigenous peoples in Canada. The IBA respectfully submits that Indigenous perspectives must form a central part of the analysis and whether an Indigenous government genuinely cannot afford litigation. An assessment of whether an Indigenous government's financial choices are reasonable must include the perspective of the impacted Indigenous collective based on reality and lived experience, on its distinctive needs, both pressing and basic, and often its lack of financial options to provide for those needs. Any number of systemic issues, as raised by Justice Rowe, Plaguing First Nations governments are relevant to the inquiry of impecuniosity. Intersectionalities between the live implications of intergenerational trauma, colonialism, land dispossession, disenfranchisement, unresolved land claims, and the Crown's round failure to implement treaties according to their spirit and intent are factual realities that must situate at the center of a court's assessment of impecuniosity. By making necessary space to consider realities, this court can remind decision makers of their unconscious bias regarding governments whose positions differ from their own. The fiscal realities of Indigenous governments require an open mind to bridge the gap between what Indigenous governments know to be reality and what Canada is slowly coming to learn is and has long since been reality for First Nations. 
To the extent that the Okanagan test is met, advanced cost awards provide a necessary component to uphold the honor of the crown. Advanced cost awards, an exceptional remedy indeed, are driven by concerns about access to justice and the desirability of mitigating severe inequality between litigants, such as those between the Crown and First Nations in the context of Section 35 litigation. In this court's decision in Manitoba Métis Federation Inc. versus Canada, paragraphs 15 and 16, court said that the honor of the crown, and I quote, is not a mere incantation, but rather that it finds its application in concrete practices, end quote. However, the honor of the crown will remain a mere incantation until it makes a real difference in how disputes are resolved on the ground. This court has recognized that when paired with certain circumstances, the honor of the crown can give rise to a series of specific duties, including the duty to and I quote from Manitoba Métis Federation at paragraph 78, act diligently in pursuit of its solemn obligations and the honorable reconciliation of crown and Aboriginal interests, end quote. Following this rationale, the honor of the crown should play a role in considering an Indigenous government's access to sufficient resources to pursue the fulfillment of those duties through the courts. As such, Advance interim costs are a necessary corollary function to the honor of the Crown in the context of Section 35 litigation, which itself requires expeditious dispute resolution. Due to the potential far-reaching consequences of successful Section 35 litigation on the Crown, it is incentivized to prolong litigation and advance interim cost awards provide a measure of security that the honor of the Crown does not tarnish. Considering the host of time-related impediments associated with advancing Section 35 litigation in Alberta and their resulting impacts on the financial ability of First Nations to advance treaty-based claims, some of which we set out at paragraph 23 of our factum, procedural delay can foil the claim from a determination on the merits. As this court said in Newfoundland and Labrador versus Aushitanat, uh, at paragraph 51, and I quote, Without effective remedies, the law becomes an empty symbol, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing, end quote. This Macbeth stands in stark a, contrast. Macbeth is this a great source of good quotes. Um, just a very quick point. I mean, if the crown is obstructive, and I, I'm not suggesting that that's disclosed on the facts here, it seems that there, it seems to me that there is an, another avenue uh, using costs in addition to, perhaps, or yes, in addition to uh, advanced costs, which is to seek an order uh, against the Crown because they've, you know, abused the process of the court. And, and I can conceive of a, a situation in which full indemnity might be given against uh, someone bringing forward a claim if the court has, is persuaded, for example, that uh, the Crown is simply trying to grind down in a war of attrition uh, the claimant, but, but that it's a different kind of award of costs. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it, 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 you pointed to that, and I, and I thought it was worth mentioning because um, uh, we haven't, we're not talking about crown misconduct here, but it is a potential situation where the crown uh, seeks to exhaust the resources of a claimant, which is improper but there's an alternative response if that problem arises, I think. I'll let, sure. you, I'll let you answer that if you want. If not, your time is up. Okay, thank you.
All right. Thank you very much. Um, Kate Gunn. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices, here on behalf of the Treaty 8 First Nations of Alberta. Treaty 8 First Nations have two points to raise on this appeal. Our first point is that First Nations in our submission should not be required to qualify for advanced costs to demonstrate an exceptional level of poverty to advance publicly important litigation. This is because the Okanagan test exists not solely for the benefit of individual litigants, but for the public as a whole. The test recognizes that in exceptional circumstances, an applicant's financial state should not preclude the court from determining issues which are of national importance. And we submit this is particularly important in the context of Section 35 litigation where the public has a recognized vested interest in advancing the process of reconciliation. So are you, are you, because um, I'm interested, I was interested in reading this in your factum, are you suggesting then a refined test to be applied in test cases? Uh, thank you, Justice Brown. No, um, we don't submit that the test needs to be refined specifically or broadened. Because um, it seems to me that you're speaking of, I mean, these important cases, they're important beyond the Beyond, beyond the interests of the parties concerned because they, well, because there's a public interest in, in, in clarifying legal obligation. And, uh, but, but, but if it's broader, then I guess I need to understand what you mean by um, public importance. Thank you, Justice. Um, what we submit is that where a case is of broad public importance, particularly where it's a case uh, that raises issues of Section 35 and reconciliation, that the Okanagan test, the financial means aspect of it, should not be applied in a way that it cannot proceed simply because the First Nation is unable to demonstrate a level of impecuniosity that it's unable to provide for the basic needs of its citizens. And we further submit that the fact that there's widespread structural poverty for First Nation communities similarly should not be used as a basis for disqualifying applicants for seeking advanced costs and obtaining those costs. Ultimately, we submit it as a contextual analysis that's based on the individual circumstances of each case. But where a First Nation cannot pay for litigation and also meet basic needs, including needs for its cultural survival, it should not be disqualified from uh, proceeding with the advanced costs order and having that issue determined. If that approach was adopted, the result would be that issues that go to the heart of Section 35 and the objective of reconciliation would not be heard. And in our submission, this should not be the way the test is applied. Rather, the fact that a First Nation has allocated limited funds to address those pressing needs should not prevent courts from determining issues of significant national importance. Our second submission is that the proper approach to advanced costs should support the resolution of Section 35 claims through both negotiation and litigation. Advanced cost orders play a critical role in the resolution of Section 35 by enabling First Nations to obtain guidance from courts prior and to negotiations and to enforce those rights when and if negotiations fail. And while this court has been clear that negotiation is the preferred means for resolving Section 35 claims, Negotiated resolutions can only be achieved when both First Nations and the Crown have the opportunity to seek recourse to the courts to clarify and enforce their positions. 
And as this court recently recognized in Desatel, it's the duty of courts to provide the authoritative interpretation of Section 35. Ultimately, reconciliation is achieved through good faith negotiations that are guided and reinforced by decisions of the courts. And so an application of the Okanagan test, which requires a First Nation to exhaust all available funds, would impair the court's ability to provide input on the nature and scope of Indigenous people's rights and the Crown's obligations under Section 35. We submit instead that the financial means branch of the test should be applied in a way that preserves First Nations' ability to seek guidance from the courts on the interpretation of their rights, and which in turn supports the process of reconciliation through negotiated agreements. In closing, we submit that the test should not be applied so as to require First Nations to demonstrate exceptional poverty to advance publicly important litigation, and instead should be applied in a way that fosters and supports reconciliation through both uh, negotiation and litigated solutions. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Sandra Azevedo. Chief Justice, Justices. Ecojustice Canada Society intervenes in this appeal because public interest litigants bringing publicly important and meritorious environmental law and other cases should not be expected to sacrifice their ability to meet all other reasonable pressing needs when bringing cases that benefit the public at large. So in my time, I'd like to speak to two points. First, that a narrow financial means test that draws a line between short-term basic necessities and long-term other reasonable pressing financial needs will overly constrain judges to grant not only advanced cost orders, but also the full spectrum of pre-hearing cost orders available to ensure that meritorious and publicly important cases continue. Second, that the availability of these middle ground pre-hearing cost orders, referring to both partial advanced cost orders where an applicant can afford some, but not all litigation, but also protective cost orders where a litigant may be able to afford costs up to a hearing, but not the risk of adverse costs at the end. That these middle ground pre-hearing cost orders should be integrated into and inform a financial means test, which allows for a judge to balance the reasonable financial pressing uh, choices of a public interest, a particular public interest litigant with the reasonable burden between both the public interest litigant and the defendant. Now, moving to the consequences of a narrow financial means test, it's important to keep in mind that as directed by this court in Little Sisters at paragraph 46, we only get to looking at the financial means of a litigant and whether there are any other orders available to allow for a, a case to, to continue once a court has already determined that a case is publicly important and has sufficient merit such that it would be counter to the interests of justice for the case to not continue based on a lack of financial resources. And so it's in this context that courts assess the financial means and determine what type of order, if any, is needed for a case to continue. And what we say is that this includes considering whether that requires some contribution from the applicant in terms of partial advance costs, or whether it should include a protection from adver adverse costs and only a protection from adverse costs in the form of a protective cost order. And this consideration of all appropriate orders is part of this financial means element of the test. And this is why a normative exercise is needed rather than a mere accounting exercise. And 
An example of this can be if, the, if a court is then asked to consider whether a protective costs order is an option for allowing a case to continue, which is a more moderate order than, than requiring the Crown to pay uh, for full advance costs up front. Then a short-term assessment of basic needs of what a litigant can afford now in terms of litigation costs cannot and does not take into account the danger that future financial risks, so several years down the line, the adverse costs, the risk of adverse costs might reasonably prevent the litigant from moving forward and continuing to bring a case that has already been determined to have exceptional importance and merit. And so drawing an arbitrary line in terms of the time scale and types of financial constraints and risk that courts can consider when assessing the financial burden on a litigant limits and will limit the ability of courts to grant orders that are needed to allow meritorious and important cases to continue. And so uh, to the second point about how the availability of these creative pre-hearing costs orders and, how, and the direction from this court uh, in Little Sisters that these orders should be considered as part of uh, determining whether there's a real, other realistic options for a case to continue. Ecojustice submits that this court has an opportunity in this case to ensure the availability of all of these orders by clarifying that judges can take a broad look at the financial means of a litigant to determine what they genuinely can afford. One that can examine the nature of the litigant in terms of whether it's a government or an organization or an individual and the related reasonable financial choices of the public interest litigant, looking at not only their current financial resources, but their future constraints over the long term and the degree of financial burden fairly placed between the defendant and the public interest litigant. This broad approach will allow a court to determine whether any order is necessary to uphold the interests of justice by ensuring that cases of exceptional public importance and merit can continue. Thank there you are very no much. further questions. Thank you. Melanie Gaston. Good afternoon. You have heard many submissions today about the importance of a contextual approach in the assessment of the impecuniosity requirement for an order for advanced costs. The Advocate Society recognizes this court has already guided lower courts to consider the context and all relevant circumstances in advanced cost applications, but is here today because lower court decisions have demonstrated that clarification is needed regarding how exactly to do that. Questions from the bench today indicate an interest in a better measure of what amounts to impecuniosity in these circumstances. This appeal presents that clarification opportunity. We do not suggest a change to the test for advanced costs. Just to better articulate the approach to the impecuniosity assessment, which itself is in the interest of access to justice and ought to be considered contextually. The focus of these submissions is to advocate the adoption of the unduly onerous standard of impecuniosity already used regularly in the consideration of solicitor client costs and security for costs. So you do want courts. to change the test? Uh, <laughs> thank you, sir. No, uh, actually, we just want a clarification of the test. Oh, we yeah, believe well, that I, this I, is what have... was always meant in both Okanagan and in Little Sisters. So you don't want us to say impossible to proceed anymore or genuinely cannot afford, you want us to say unduly onerous? 
we want the consideration of whether in the context of that specific applicant, unduly, it would be unduly onerous um, right. for them to proceed. So that's a different uh, test. Anyways, you've got limited time, but I'm on to you. <laughs> I appreciate that, sir. The unduly onerous approach allows appropriate weight to be given to the individual applicant's financial circumstances when assessing whether that applicant can genuinely afford to bear the costs of public interest litigation, even in the interim. This additional guidance will prevent a court from limiting the analysis to an objective determination of whether an applicant has access to some funds and will direct them to consider the impact that funding, that funding the litigation would have on that particular applicant. Knowing they have to demonstrate that funding the litigation would be unduly onerous will also assist applicants in ensuring they provide the best evidence to permit the court's assessment of whether they can genuinely afford to fund the litigation. As evidenced in our factum, requiring litigants to expend all resources short of basic necessities is simply not workable. Assessing whether funding a public interest litigation would be unduly onerous permits the consideration of the economic position of individuals, not-for-profit entities, Indigenous governments, and others who may find themselves in a position to pursue significant and meaningful public interest matters, but who hold very different sorts of financial obligations. Assessing an applicant's impecuniosity. What this, what this would amount to, uh, coming back to what Justice Brown said, is you keep the heading and you change the content and under it, such that any public interest group that comes forward and says, we're doing good works, we're doing things that help people, we're, we're doing meaningful things in the community, so you can't ask us to divert resources from that. Is it any more complicated, is your submission any more complicated than that? I don't think it is, sir. I think what it does, though, sir, is it allows for us to have a, a lens through which to view the impecuniosity and whether um, the applicant can genuinely afford the costs. Can I, can yes, I just sir. ask you this? Because it seems to me that what's going on here is almost a year to year. You'd have to have a continuous following up on the financial status of the person, how they've been spending the money, what income they've been generating, have they been doing enough, have they been spending the money prudently or not prudently, et cetera, et cetera. You almost want to monitor, it seems to me, brought into these situations to ensure that the applicant uh, is still entitled to um, funding from its opponent. I, I don't know if I've explained that right, but. It, but, it, but I, I just don't know how you can sort of monitor this otherwise. I'm, I see I'm running out of time, sir. I'm wondering if I might have permission to just sure. address your, yeah. your question. Go ahead, please. Um, I still believe, sir, that the, the assessment of whether um, a, a party is, uh, can genuinely afford to bear the cost is at the time of the application. And what you're speaking to is how any of those advanced costs should the other parts of the test be met by the applicant, um, how, the, how the order is structured. So if the order is structured to be paid over time, then perhaps there would be a monitoring function that would benefit, um, benefit the assessment. However, it's at the time of the application and whether, they're, whether the applicant is entitled to costs, that's a, that's a, a, a static point in time. 
Okay, one, one last question from Justice Kirkatsanis. I'm actually having the opposite problem of uh, my colleagues. I'm not understanding what the difference is between unduly onerous and genuinely cannot afford. In practical terms, what is the difference? Because what genuinely, um, whether someone can genu gen genuinely afford something is going to be different depending on the nature of the applicant in that public interest litigation. And so unduly onerous offers a lens for a contextual approach to you know, the response When I hear the word lens and contextual in the same sentence, I hear mush. I think what it really means is you're rephrasing the test in a way to make it easier to meet. I don't think it's, I, it, that's not the intention, sir. The rephrasing of the test is intended to make it clearer what the test is for both the judges that must apply it and the applicants that must meet it. All right, I thank you very much. Thank you. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. We'll be back at 12.30, Ottawa time. Thank you, be seated, please. Aldo Argento. Good afternoon, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. I will uh, focus my submissions today on three issues. First, the Court of Appeal did not change the impecuniosity requirement established by this court, but relied on the undisputed findings and the new evidence to properly set aside the original order. Second, the impecuniosity threshold sets a clear standard and the test continues to work as intended in Okanagan and Little Sisters. It also remains sufficiently flexible to address the issues that have been raised. Finally, the policy considerations previously identified by this court still apply today and continue to weigh in favor of granting advance costs only exceptionally and not lowering the threshold for impecuniosity. Now, before starting my submissions on the first issue, I briefly wanted to highlight a preliminary point. Ultimately, this appeal addresses the careful balance to be struck between a litigant's financial decisions and the entitlement to extraordinary advanced costs requiring the use of public funds. Alberta has acknowledged throughout that the appellants have a number of important community needs and face challenges, and clearly the appellants have the right to make financial decisions in the best interests of their community. However, where a litigant has funds that are available, more than nominal, and they're not currently being used for pressing community needs and will have additional revenue going forward, the test for advanced costs is not met. The fact the appellants do not meet the test and the high financial threshold set by this court to qualify in no way minimizes the issues they face as an Indigenous community. Instead, it reflects the clearly defined limits that have been established by this court for such extraordinary orders. Now turning to the first issue, and that's really the application of the test by the courts below, many of the arguments that have been put forward have been based on the Court of Appeal having changed this court's test, applied it unjustly, or imposed new requirements to unreasonably exhaust all available funds. Uh, we submit that's not what happened. Instead, the Court of Appeal reviewed the uncontested findings, including those setting out what unrestricted and restricted funds were available to the appellants and applied the Okanagan and Little Sisters criteria. And in doing so, it did not simply apply an artificial only any available funds analysis, 
The Court of Appeal also considered whether these funds were actually available by noting the test was not one of unqualified impecuniosity. It also held that an Indigenous community that cannot meet the necessities of life and also fund the litigation is impecunious for the purposes of the test. Now, I, I want to jump into the, the importance of the undisputed findings uh, that the respondents say prevented a finding of impecuniosity at first instance. Firstly, the case management justice did not find that the unrestricted funds that were available could not be used for the litigation because they were being used for basic needs or because there were specific plans to use them for these basic needs. The case management justice found that there were three and a half million dollars available in unrestricted money that could be used for the litigation. And this came from two basic sources that you heard about already this morning. The first was the IAIR account. And importantly, and this is set out at paragraph 44 of the case management justice's decision, and that's in Alberta's condensed book at tab four. That is a recurring source of oil and gas and industry income that has been used, important to note how it's been used, to pay legal and consultants fees for this litigation and also for four other legal firms retained on various matters. And that's set out at paragraphs 44 and paragraphs 53 of the case manager's decision. And the case manager also noted that the money in this account has no restrictions. So that was one important source. That was 1.4 million. Now the can other I, can I ask amount. You, sorry, can I ask you to comment on the submission that was made this morning that reconciliation, sorry, that um, consultation itself in this context is a pressing need? Uh, the consultation consulta fund, is it not? Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, Justice, I just missed that last part. Yeah, I, the IARA account is the consultation fund, I believe. It, it, is, is, right? it is in part monies received uh, from uh, industry for consultation. It also includes, as Justice Brown found, that it had other uh, monies in there from various contracts that... Uh, the appellants have with industry. So it's not just limited to consultation, but that's certainly part of it. Consultation is Im an important part of uh, what this First Nation has to do. They have funding from industry for that. They've had some funding on the record from government for that, that they have used, but not all of the money in this account clearly has been used for consultation because of the finding that some of it was also used for litigation and paying lawyers in other matters. So is it fair to say that you don't dispute that where money is needed for consultation, that is in fact a basic need of the community. The issue here is really more the empirical question of whether it was actually needed for consultation in its entirety. I, I, it's certainly an important need. I think when we get into what basic needs are, I, I tend to think of them in perhaps in more personal terms, in terms of water, food, you know, uh, housing and so on. But it is an important community need. And yes, as you indicated, Justice, there, there are multiple sources of funds in this account that, and some of them being devoted to consultation. Just as a very simple point, the sense I get from reading about this fund is that it is not just a static amount. 
It's not that there's, there was a one-time payment into it and that at a certain point it will simply be exhausted. There's, there are revenues flowing in and there are expenditures flowing out. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it, it's a, in a sense, a dynamic account. It's something which, you know, money comes in, money goes out. That's, that's the nature of uh, how this uh, account operates. Uh, yes, it's, th there is recurring funding in there from various sources, as uh, the case management justice indicated, from various contracts. You referenced property tax assessment funding, an ATCO contract, and then the uh, energy industry agreements. I'm just trying to understand something, though. The trial judge found $3 million or so available for the court matter. And so it's not as if she found that they were so impecunious that they couldn't come up with anything. And she uses that figure and says, okay, you got to keep up the $300,000 a year that you have been paying. And so the Court of Appeal, if I understand it correctly, says she was just wrong, dead wrong on that right away. In fact, if all they had was $3 million available, that would have been enough to, to address the impecuniosity issue against the ban. So now we move forward, though, and the Court of Appeal says, oh, we got much more than that. We've got this settlement for 297. Where in the Court of Appeal's reasons do they take into account that the COVID situation had arisen in the meantime and give effect to, or at least say, go back to the, uh, the trial judge and sort of set out the extra costs that are involved here so that we can balance and see whether or not you really did get an extra 2.9 or whether or not you're going in the hole for 2.9. Where, where is that? They talk about the 2.9 because that's easy. That's the money that's there. They don't bother to, it seems to me. Now, maybe it's not their task. Maybe it was up to the Indigenous band to put forward what these costs are, but you've got to bear in mind, COVID's going on. Not so easy to do all these things. Better to send it back to a trial judge where the evidence can be properly marshaled in a reasonable period of time. I don't see any of that here. Uh, there, there wasn't a specific analysis of the appellant's evidence it, in the Court of Appeals decision in terms of the numbers. It did admit all of that evidence. And in what our, did it our say, sorry, what did it say about what did it say about that evidence? It admits it, just to be what fair, without it, without saying well, what's involved here? Well, I, I think it's important to to look at that evidence, and the essentially there were two pieces of new evidence from the appellants. One was from Mr. Kayabiab, the band's financial manager, where he indicated that the. Uh, IOGC, the Ottawa Trust account, had been reduced from 2.1 million to just under a million dollars. And he specifically noted, and, and that's in uh, tab seven of Alberta's condensed book where all the new evidence is, in his affidavit. And this is important just in terms of, and this is on the second page of paragraph five, in terms of how the uh, money had been used to reduce the uh, amount in that IOGC account. He notes at paragraph five that the reduction was a withdrawal of $600,000 for urgent infrastructure repairs and salary costs, and then also $800,000 to cover shortfalls in salaries and wages. 
So much of the reduction in the IOGC account was for salaries and wages. And that brought that down to 2 million. And then in the chief's affidavit, which follows Mr. Kayabiab's affidavit, My apologies, I, it's, it's under tab 7B of Alberta's condensed book. It was just before it. And that was Chief Anderson's affidavit. And I think the, the important uh, issue from Chief Anderson's evidence was that there was an acknowledgement of the settlement, the number was slightly different, 2.77 versus 2.97. And then an indication in paragraph five that these funds were being held in trust and the leadership was deciding how to use that money in, for various potential competing demands, including uh, paying for uh, this litigation as required by Justice Brown. So all of which is to say there was clearly an acknowledgement of the settlement funds. There was nothing specific in this new evidence as to how this money had to be used or was going to be used for pressing community needs. And in our submission, based on all of the new evidence in its totality and based on this court's decision in Stoller, the evidence was of a sufficiently decisive nature to say the 3.5 million that Justice Brown had found had now been increased by uh, roughly $2 million reflecting the reduction in the IOGC account to now leave the First Nation with a little over $5 million in available funds. So in the circumstances, it's our position that the Court of Appeal properly dealt with the evidence. And, and again, re recollecting that this was not a new issue or you know, one that came out of nowhere. It was one that was specifically contemplated by the case management justice. In her order, she had specifically directed that any such settlement payments like this top gas settlement would require a revisitation of the order. The Court of Appeal, in our respectful submission, was also mindful of the order granting permission to appeal to uh, not delay this matter further and to um, have it resolved. Mr. Argento, can I ask you a question that uh, may also be addressed uh, to Canada as well, which is in terms of the identification or the costs of the pressing infrastructure and social needs, um, we have in the record certain cross-examinations um, on affidavits. Um, and uh, I guess I, I have two questions. One is, are those the totality of the cross-examinations that took place that are on the record? And the second is, in that cross-examination, was there an attempt to get further information um, uh, and discovery of the identification of those or the costs, or was that something that was addressed? I, uh, I believe that all of the cross-examinations that are in the record, that would be the totality of them. And I'd, I don't think that those specific issues came up in, in cross-examination or are, are noted in evidence anywhere in terms of the exact costing of those needs and the plan, specific plans to address them. So, so what kind of evidence do you say is necessary in terms of identifying the needs and the costs and the plans to address them? It, it's, 
you know, again, it's a very careful balance given what's being asked of the court here in terms of extraordinary advanced costs. So there has to be, we say, some evidence, some clear evidence. It, even the Court of Appeal recognized it doesn't have to be an overly granular exercise. It doesn't have to be a forensic audit. There was a lot of financial information here. But given what's being asked and, and given the, the quantum of available funds, uh, there, which was in excess of $5 million, including the new evidence, there has to be some identification of he, here's how this money is being used right now or needs to be used in, in the near future. So there has to be something and something more than was provided we respectfully submit. That, uh, let's say that uh, a First Nation, an applicant says, uh, we have uh, basic needs to um, meet necessities of life. Uh, what, uh, what, should be, what should be the evidence? What uh, should they file in terms of, uh, to show that rough estimates or just ballpark figures or what? I, I, I mean, I think, I guess it will depend on the context. Uh, certain needs that are identified can probably be costed more specifically than others, uh, but there, there will have to be some, some reasonable uh, evidence and objective criteria that an application justice can, can assess in order to understand, are these funds available? Are they actually available or are they only notionally available because they're needed for those basic needs? I have, I, you know, I, I realize it's difficult in the abstract to kind of you know, formulate, well, what kind of evidence, what degree of granularity, but, so I'm wondering if it might be helpful to go to the record here. In Mr. Rankin's affidavit, sworn um, April 2018, April 10, 2018, he alludes to weekly meetings with department managers to review and ensure the immediate and long-term tasks are on schedule and to assisting departmental managers with their budgets and funding requests which is suggestive, I think, that department managers are aware of their immediate and future needs and are reviewing and monitoring that. Um, and, and Justice Brown at the hearing also asked whether the nation operates according to a strate strategic plan, and the answer from counsel for Beaver Lake was that each department submits budgets according to their priorities, which suggests that, again, each department has identified pressing needs. So, so is this the kind of information that should be included in the record to help the court understand what priorities have been set, um, being funded, and whether there's funding shortfalls? I, I, think, I think it would be. And there is obviously in the case of, and this will vary by different uh, Indigenous communities, there is a combination of government funding, which the case management justice said was significant, and there's also non-government unrestricted funding. And there'd have to be an analysis of that in any given year to see what, what these particular shortfalls or pressing needs would be in these different departments. Can I bring you back to the issue of the um, identifying the specific needs and the costs, quite apart from the issue of how they plan to use the money, just in terms of costing what the needs are. In the context of this case, was there any real dispute that the housing, the education, the health, the sewage, the various economic and social needs would be more than $3 million to address? Is that realistic? 
I, again, it's difficult, again, to answer that without having a, a full understanding of what those needs are and which of those needs are not covered by government program funding. And, and the reason I, and I'll, I'll provide one specific illustration, which is important. You heard Ms. Brooks this morning uh, mention the sewage lagoon. That's clearly a basic need. There's, there's no question about that. That lagoon was in the process of being, uh, funding approval from Canada was in the process of being finalized at the time of the application. That is now, as I understand it, being completed at a cost of $8 million. That's being funded by Canada. So that's an example of an important basic infrastructural need, but not one that's requiring the First Nation to take out of this available funding to pay for it. So. I think we have to be just a little bit careful in terms of, you know, looking at the numbers in the abstract without knowing what the First Nation will be covering versus what is going to be paid ultimately by Canada. I mean, it, it, I used to do, um, be quite involved in budgeting processes, and you have to look at flows of revenues and patterns of expenditure. And I guess it's the same with a company. It's the difference in a balance sheet and a statement of income and expenses, which ain't the same. Um, and if you look at the situation of the community and you say, is $3 million or five enough to solve all its problems? I think you probably say no. I mean, it's just, they're, too, they're larger than that. But if you say, what is the pattern of revenues, notably from uh, the national government, and the pattern of expenditures, you can then get a picture of how problems are being addressed over time, which is, as a practical matter, how governments operate. And so I get this sort of discontinuity when I look at these things. People say, well, this amount of money is just inadequate given the demands, but Yes, if there was, if, if $3 million was the only cent that they were ever going to have for the rest of their existence, of course that would be so. But it, it, this, is, this, is a, this is a year over year situation where there's a flow of funds. And I just, um, the, the, the money was there, but the First Nation says, it seems to me, that amount of money can't fix all our problems. So we can't have regard to that for this litigation purpose. But it seems to me that ignores the fact that there's a flow of funds on an annual basis. And as you've said, the government of Canada meets certain needs. They fund certain requirements. And to say that there are requirements which need to be met, um, the door to knock on for that may be Indian Affairs and Northern Development or whatever it's called these days, um, Indigenous Services, I think. The, there are certainly very large issues, which as Alberta stated in its fact, and certainly you know, the sufficiency of government funding goes well beyond the issues on this appeal. And, and again, I think quite correctly noted justice that this is a, a dynamic situation that will change from year to year, both in terms of what funds are available, what those needs are and how they're being met or not met. I just wanted to address in terms of the undisputed findings, and this ties into this issue of basic needs, because this was an important finding in relation to the Heritage Trust. And this is, uh, as the court knows, uh, a savings fund that the appellants have put together, have established 
based on uh, funding accommodation payments from uh, energy industry companies uh, as part of consultation. And that the case management justice found that that fund, the Harris Trust savings was valued at $2.2 million, anticipated to grow by uh, another 1.5 up to just under 4 million, 3.7 million by, by now, 2021. And what's important about that are a few things. One is that is money that has been set aside for the community for its important needs. It has not yet been used. And I think it was obviously clearly relevant for the courts below to take that into consideration to say, in terms of pressing community needs, that is a relevant factor that this money is potentially available when the community decides that it's appropriate to use it, but it has not yet been used. So again, it's important to look at that in the context of all of this. And, and just to clarify that Alberta has never said that that money should be used to fund litigation, but it's again part of the overall picture as to how the community can in the future address its needs. Now, I just wanted to briefly touch on, before I move to another topic, uh, a couple of other key findings that were important here. So okay, in addition sorry, um, to can having... I, can I interrupt you just to, before you leave the Heritage Trust? But what, yes. what's then your position on whether the, whether the uh, Beaver Lake could tie up these assets and plan their expenditure as a government, as a First Nations government, and contrary to what the Court of Appeal said, that they couldn't be blamed in some measure for tying up assets and removing them from availability. What, is, was the Court of Appeal wrong on that point? I, in our position, that's, that's completely up to the appellants as to how they deal with those funds, the, the, heritage, the heritage savings. And uh, th those funds, again, cannot be used for litigation. So it's up to the appellants to decide what the restrictions are, how they use them, and, and when they choose to use them in the future. So, so it, it, does the Heritage Fund then go into the mix? I'm, I, I'm, I've, I've lost you a little bit because that I understood the Court of Appeal to take paragraph 18 to be rather more firm about saying that the strict restrictions placed on the Heritage Trust, um, because they were placed after the fact, are now voluntarily tied up, and that it was unfair that they could uh, rely on that fact to argue impecuniosity. We, we don't agree with the Court of Appeal on that point. They don't, and I, I apologize for, I'll clarify what my earlier submission was. The Heritage Savings or the Heritage Trust does not factor into the mix in terms of funds that could be used for litigation. They factor into the mix in terms of the overall evaluation of whether the appellants are impecunious, where they say we need available funds that could be used for litigation to use for pressing needs when they have not yet used their Heritage Trust funds, which are available to them, to them in the future. Well, that's a pretty substantial amount. And if that amount and the, the debate over the fresh evidence weren't just considered by the case management judge, is it perhaps best that this whole thing be reviewed from start to finish rather than simply dismissing the appeal? Well, what, what, I, would, what I would say is that that was a significant amount, but it, it didn't factor into uh, 
I guess how, how the math should be done here as to what funds were available for litigation. The, the funds that should be available went from 3.5 to about 5.4 or so, not including the heritage funds. So again, ultimately, obviously it's up to this court, but in our view, the Court of Appeal did correctly rely on the new evidence uh, such that this matter could be dealt with here without having to be remitted back to the case management justice. I'm wondering whether, was there an issue, this was June of 2020, was there an issue of gaining access to the Queen's bench, to the, to the Queen's bench? I mean, COVID has been kind of put out and I don't want to become too much of a distraction, but I, I seem to recall the Queen's bench kind of shut itself up tight for a while. Uh, there, I, I believe we'd had a case management meeting just before the, the court shut down. Essentially what had happened was the, the permission to appeal and the appeal sort of overtook the process as a new case management justice had been appointed. And we, we proceeded with the appeal before, you know, any opportunity to go back to the case management justice. Can I come back to the Heritage Trust and, and I think the answer we got from the um, appellants this morning was it depends on on whether the object of the trust itself is um, can be considered an, uh, an essential need or nece necessary. Um, can you finish your answer on the essential trust, on the trust, heritage trust funds? The, again, the, the, the funds in the trust uh, are provided from oil and gas companies pursuant to impact benefit agreements. Typically, these agreements have specific purposes as to how these funds can be used for community improvements and just generally for the benefit of the community. So the, the trust has, as I recall, certain restrictions on how much could be accessed at any given time. It's 10% a year. On, 10% a year. I believe year. that's, yes, but, that's but, correct. Um, the terms are um, that funds should be allocated to community development activities, which include environment, healthy living, safety, education, lifelong learning, training, employment, etc. Arts, culture, spiritual, preservation of traditional knowledge, housing, community development. Right. So uh, again, at, at the discretion of the appellants at the time of their choosing as to when they wish to modify these restrictions when it's necessary for them to use them for basic needs. I'd like to... Is it, sorry, oh, is sorry. it not appropriate for a reserve to have a reserve, an autonomous group that's running its own community that can't raise funds by taxing, as I understand it? I mean, is it... I mean, the realities are, why shouldn't they be able to have some sort of a fund available for emergencies and so on? And what, what's so terrible about that? Does that mean, oh, you're not impecunious? Um, I, you know, for, for purposes of fighting a litigant that has, theoretically, uh, all the funds in the world. Well, it, I guess two, two responses to that. First, they're... They're, they do have the opportunity, and the Heritage Trust is a, the example of that, of monies that are not being used for litigation that can continue to be built up, and, and they're doing that. And then, again, we come back to the balance that has to be achieved uh, as directed by this court in Okanagan Little Sisters as to is it, you know, genuinely unaffordable, is it impossible to continue with the litigation? I, I see that my uh, my time is up. But I'm I'm wondering if I given the, given the number of questions put to you, I will I will give you five more minutes to conclude. 
Thank you, Chief Justice. I, I appreciate that. I, I just want to... Uh, That's called a reserve. <laughs> I just want to just touch on some policy issues. And, and, and this really goes back to first th two things. So firstly, the, the existing test, the requirements in Alberta submission are clear and there's sufficient flexibility as this court set out in Little Sisters at paragraph 37 that a court assessing the requirements of the advanced cost test has the discretion to consider all relevant factors that arise on the facts. And we would say that that continues to provide the necessary discretion to assess impecuniosity, whether it's an Indigenous applicant or non-Indigenous applicant. Next, and I think importantly, caution should be exercised before lowering the financial threshold for advanced costs without any legislative involvement. Uh, a relaxation of the test would certainly lead to a large increase in the use of public funds for litigation well beyond the exceptional parameters of Okanagan Little Sisters. And while access to justice is obviously fundamental and built into the underlying rationale for advanced costs, this court has also noted the balance that must be maintained and that not all access to justice issues can be addressed through advanced costs. And I'll just refer briefly to Okanagan, paragraph 36, this court stated the requirements might be modified if the legislature were to set out the conditions on which interim costs are to be granted. And then in addressing this issue again in Little Sisters at paragraph 44, this court stated and expressly cautioned against an alternative and extensive legal aid system being put into place through the courts as this would amount to imprudent and inappropriate judicial overreach. And Alberta submits that the rationale articulated by this court in those earlier decisions remains equally valid today. Uh, in conclusion, uh, it's our submission that the Court of Appeals decision was rooted in the undisputed findings and the new evidence. It followed the principles set out in Okanagan Little Sisters. Its decision does not represent a departure from the existing law or put advanced costs out of reach. They remain exceptionally available as intended by this court. Um, and again, such orders must remain exceptional and available only as a last resort to prevent an injustice, given their use of public funds before the merits of an action have been determined. Um, and uh, subject to any further questions, those are all of my submissions. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. François Joyal. Good afternoon, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. I should now have our outline, which is at tab one of our condensed book. Um, in, in sum, uh, Canada agrees with Alberta that the Court of Appeal correctly intervened in this case. Uh, without uh, repeating my friend's points, uh, I'll, I'll have two main points today, uh, which I'll summarize now. For, first of all, under point A in our outline, we agree that the Court of Appeal applied the correct legal test to assess impecuniosity in this case. More particularly, the Court of Appeal uh, could conclude on the facts as found by the case management judge that the appellant's uh, prima facie did not meet the test. But I guess more importantly, uh, we say uh, that consistently with the high threshold, which was set by this court in terms of uh, granting advanced costs, the Court of Appeal could find in this case that the judge had applied too low a test uh, and ultimately failed to show in a demonstrable way uh, 
uh, how the appellants in this case satisfied the threshold, uh, the applicable threshold of necessity. That will be our point A. In terms of point B, which is perhaps more the policy point, as my friend has referred to, we also say that uh, the court does not change the test for impecuniosity. Uh, we say it remains good law. Um, whether generally or in the context of indigenous claims. And I, perhaps with the court's permission, I will probably spend a little bit more time on that uh, since my friend hasn't had the time to deal or elaborate on the policy questions and the interveners have raised the uh, points which go to this issue. Um, and in a nutshell on point B, we of course agree with Alberta that the current test is flexible enough uh, to be applied uh, consistently with reconciliation in a way that it permits a judge on a case-by-case -case basis to take into account all relevant contextual elements. I think it's not fair to say that the Court of Appeal in this case uh, did not apply such a, a standard. It took into account all the relevant elements, but ultimately there was a legal error in the judge's decision and it had to intervene. Still on point B, uh, a lot of the arguments which were raised today uh, by the interveners especially uh, go perhaps more to the application of the other branches of the test for advanced costs and are best appreciated under those other branches such as public in importance and uh, prima facie merits and have little uh, impact in terms of how impecuniosity should be assessed. I'll elaborate on that. Uh, ultimately, our point is that advanced costs uh, can serve a useful purpose, uh, but they can't become an alternative system for the public funding of public interest litigation. Uh, that responsibility has been left and should remain uh, left with the legislature. And unless there are questions, I won't deal with our third point about the reasonableness of the terms of the order. That is, unless there are questions. So. To begin with our point A, uh, the Court of Appeal applied the correct legal test. Um, now we say that the Court of Appeal's enunciation uh, of the uh, test in this case uh, flows from and is, re and is consistent with how this court has, uh, with the high standard that, the, that this court has articulated for advanced costs. I won't go over the, this court's decisions. There are of course known to the court. Um, I, I'll just insist on perhaps one point and that is that in Okanagan, uh, which was the first decision to deal with this, these issues um, in the context of an ind indigenous claim, uh, the court uh, formulated a demanding standard uh, for impecuniosity by uh, requiring that a, a proof be made that the party seeking interim costs genuinely cannot afford litigation and that there's no other realistic options. Uh, that is a demanding test. Uh, Little Sisters only reinforce that uh, by asking and requiring an applicant to show that they've explored all other funding options. And just, I think the court's case law justifiably shows that by nature, uh, the test for advanced costs must be a high one. And because at the root, uh, advanced costs are exceptional, it is not common uh, for a defendant to pay a plaintiff's legal fees in advance, and especially in any event of the cause. But perhaps also where uh, the Crown is the defendant, of course, advanced costs implicate the, the expenditure of public funds, which, as I said earlier, uh, is the responsibility of Parliament, ultimately. 
those are perhaps the general considerations. Now, in this case, to, to come back to this case, we say it's, it was open to the Court of Appeal to say that prima facie, the appellants did not meet the test for impecuniosity um, based Jay. on the uh, available uh, and significant funds uh, that they had. And that uh, I, I, I'll, I won't deal too much in, in detail with that aspect of the case. My friend, uh, Mr. Argento, has outlined for the court's benefit some of the courts, uh, the Court of Appeals, uh, uh, pardon, some of the judges' undisputed findings on the availability of funds. Uh, so I, perhaps I'll, I'll spend less uh, time on that. But in terms Joyelle, of our point, before, which is under... Mr. Joyal over here, before you um, just leave the test that was applied by the Court of Appeal, um, I'm just looking at paragraph um, 27 and 28, and the idea, the juxtaposition of short-term necessities and distinguishing, you know, desirable infrastructure and standards of living from basic necessities. Is there, um, I guess I, I'd like your submissions on whether, in fact, um, pressing needs are limited to short-term um, necessities and only basic necessities to be distinguished from infrastructure and standards of living. Um, Madam Justice Karakatsanis, I think the, the point made here by the Court of Appeal is not to perhaps uh, limit uh, basic needs to just short-term needs. I, I think it could be envisaged that long-term needs could be basic needs. I think what the court uh, is actually expressing here is that in this case, um, the the problem was that, or the issue comes down to what are more perhaps discretionary types of, of, of spendings versus uh, other spendings which are justified on a standard of necessity. And I think, in, in of course, short-term spending on basic needs corresponds to uh, spending that is on, uh, on something that, 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 that corresponds to a standard of necessity. Longer term spending may not, but this will uh, always depend on the facts of each case. I, I think that's, that, that is the gist of what the court, is, the court of Appeal was saying. When I've got a, a leak or, a, or sort of a porch on my back porch in my house that's getting a little old, I said, well, you know, one of these days I got to fix that thing, right? It's, it, it's Indeed. sort of past its prime. And so I've got to build it into the plan. But if there's no food in the refrigerator, I got to deal with that tomorrow or today, actually. So some things, by their nature, are on a different time scale. And I think that goes uh, that ties in directly with um, uh, what the Court of Appeal is saying, in the sense that um, uh, the assessment of whether something is a basic need uh, will, of course, take into consideration the time horizon on which it's planned. Um, in some cases, uh, the time horizon will be determinative in the sense that uh, uh, they may not, the, the needs perhaps will not be as pressing uh, in, in the sense that they should lead to a finding of impecuniosity. But again, where I guess at this point, it's, it's a bit difficult to deal with specifics. Um, uh, I think that's, a, 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 that's the general proposition I, I would submit. Can I ask uh, Monsieur Joyal a, a, a question on just the way in which the language of Okanagan and Little Sisters is 
it has been advanced and you've heard other parties suggest that perhaps it should be reframed, that it could be more congenial, easier to understand. I'm wondering what your sense is, is whether, whether um, undue hardship, uh, unduly onerous um, would be more helpful, would, would reduce the harshness that one sometimes sees in, in some of the judgments as opposed to other judgments. And one particular instance I have in mind is what might be the possibly a dissonance between Okanagan saying at paragraph 40, no other realistic option exists for bringing the issues to trial, which is often quoted, and paragraph 71 of Little Sisters where it, the court says the impecuniosity requirement from Okanagan means that it must be proven to be impossible to proceed um, otherwise before advance costs will be ordered. That idea of impossibility seems, at least to my ear, maybe slightly harsher than no other realistic option. And is it maybe, is it maybe an instance where the language could be massaged a bit without changing the rule? Um, well, uh, Mr. Justice Kazir, I, you of course know what our position is on, on whether or not the test should be changed. It's, it's in our factum and in our outline, you'll, you'll get the gist of what we're uh, submitting. Uh, just very briefly, um, the test um, has been applied for over almost two decades now. Uh, uh, there's no without difficulty, we say, and there's no criticism that's emanated from any of the lower court judges as to whether or not the test doesn't work. And I think that's a valid and relevant consideration for this court. Um, I won't uh, go over the test that this court has adopted for whether or not to change the common law, but of course, as this court knows, the court has put a premium on the interest of certainty and predictability. And the reason I say this is that some of these formulations that are being proposed uh, by some of the interveners, and I think this is a point that was made uh, by perhaps uh, some of the justices of this court, is that the, the, the propositions don't necessarily, um, are not that materially different from what the test already is. Uh, and I don't think the court should change the test just for the sake of changing the test. Um, so I guess that's that's one thing, um, and that applies particularly with with respect to the proposition by the advocate society that it, the standard should be changed to something like unduly onerous. I think it's 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 not materially different from the uh, test in Okanagan as to whether or not uh, a party can genuinely afford um, and whether there's no other realistic option. Um, Mr. Justice Kazira asked about undue hardship. I think I let me take this opportunity to respond to this point. Of course, we haven't heard uh, yet from uh, British Columbia on this point, but perhaps uh, the court will find it useful to know what our position is on this since we haven't elaborated on it in our factum and replied to the interveners. But again, uh, as with Alberta, we don't believe that the test should be changed to reflect the standard of undue hardship for two reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, we don't believe that um, uh, the contexts are the same. Hearing fees were the issues in the decision of this court and trial lawyers. Those are not the same as advanced costs. So I don't think there's a need for arm to harmonize the tests uh, 
given these these two different contexts in which uh, hearing fees on the one hand and advanced costs on the other arise. But more importantly, again, uh, back to the point I was making earlier, um, and let me use the expression in, 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 in French, uh, in some of these cases, it's blanc, uh, bonnet, blanc, bonnet, bonnet, blanc, in the sense that we're not, there's no material difference in terms of what the test, the very demanding test uh, that the court has, has, has formulated and the proposition that uh, undue hardship should be considered, for instance. I think uh, the test at the end of the day is not materially different. Um, and there's no need for the court, again, to change the test just for the sake of changing the test. Perhaps very quickly just respond to Mr. Can I ask you a question, please, very quickly? If you go to sure. pa paragraph 28 of the Court of Appeals decision, I want to see how this works in practice. I want to get your definition of what you say is a basic need as opposed to something else. So in paragraph 28, about five lines down, as noted, discretionary spending on desirable improvements to community infrastructure and standards of living can, for this purpose, be distinguished from spending on basic necessities. Now, the record in this case apparently indicates that 50 homes are, are needed are, are, so people have a place to live. That's $10 million at 200000 each, if I have that right. Um, other houses are falling down in disrepair. Um, people are living with eight or nine people in a home that probably should not contain more than four people, maybe five. Uh, now, are the how do you classify these things? I just, I mean, are the, are those? I won't call them luxuries, but just sort of um, um, what do they call it here? Uh, spending on desirable, is that a desirable improvement or is it a, a basic necessity? And that's a fair point, Justice Moldaver. Uh, uh, there's no denying that housing is a basic need. Um, uh, I think in this case, again, the problem with the Court of Appeal felt in this case when reading, when, uh, when when reading paragraph 28, and in particular, I think the, the, what the, the Court of Appeal saw as a problem here in this case is that uh, the judge didn't engage into a robust analysis of what were the needs. Uh, we've talked about this earlier. What was the cost of those needs? If and to what extent the current available funding uh, is insufficient to address those needs? And also, why isn't the, the appellant not using its other available funds to, 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 for those basic needs? Uh, in a context where there's already significant government funding, uh, that's from the judge's decision at paragraph 33, in a context where uh, an applicant is asking for uh, advanced costs to be paid out, out of public funds, I think the Court of Appeal was correct to insist on uh, something on an, on an objective test, first of all, which doesn't just rely on uh, something as general as just saying that uh, the funding for litigation should be offset by needs, but importantly, that there should be an assessment of the priority of these other expenditures based on a threshold of necessity. 
we agree and it seems that we all the parties agree that's or the principal parties agree that that's the that's the the threshold to be met my friend uh for the uh, appellant has said that the 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 the, the the, the standard to be satisfied is a threshold of necessity. So we agree on what the standard is. The problem in this case is that the analysis has to cor correspond to that high standard. And we uh, respectfully submit that the Court of Appeal was right to insist on something uh, more robust in this case. Um, to, com to come back to your point, Justice Moldaver, um, in, in this instance, the Court of Appeal didn't say, and that's what it said in its, its reasons, didn't, didn't have to uh, ex, uh, explain or to go into more detail as to what is a, exactly a basic need, although we agree that housing is, is such a, a basic need. Because in this case, there were already significant available funds available, such, especially with the new evidence, such that it wasn't necessary to make uh, fine to uh, fine to the distinctions between different types of expenditures uh, and to to answer a question that's been raised already by some of the justices of this court the granularity of the examination will depend on the facts of each case in some cases it will be quite evident that uh, there are uh, pressing basic needs and that the funds are just not available to address them such that it's not necessary to require something uh, specific or or highly specific from an applicant but in a case such as this one where there are significant available funds where there is significant government funding already being given to address basic needs there has to be something more um, I come back to my point, forgive me, but it's just basic accounting. It's the difference between a balance sheet, which is assets and liabilities, and a statement of income and expenses. I mean, uh, are you solvent? You look at the balance sheet. What is the pattern of your income and expenditures? That's, that's your income statement. And every, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that the, 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 this uh, band, this First Nation, is under the ordinary arrangements under the Indian Act, which says that each year that allocations are made under designated headings by indigenous services, and you know, sometimes the ask from the band is going to be less than the give by the government. And maybe there's a problem there, but it's different from do they have assets? Well, if I, if I understand correctly, I, I, I think eventually, as I said, the granularity of, of, of what is required from an applicant will depend on the facts of each case. I think, uh, as you've pointed out, Justice, Mr. Justice Rowe, I think when an applicant uh, or a First Nation asks for a certain amount of government funding, it does a, a certain amount of forecasting. There's no reason why that forecasting can't be done where an applicant is asking the court to order uh, make the extraordinary order of making an advanced cost order out of public funds. And to perhaps um, answer a, a, a question, uh, a point that was made earlier, there's no denying uh, that there are challenges. Uh, Canada, Canada doesn't deny that there are challenges. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, these are complex issues. There already, it already is significant government funding uh, for those basic needs. Is it going to be enough? Of course not. There are always going to be needs, but that, uh, that is a, a consideration uh, that needs to be uh, taken into account. Um, 
still on the issue of basic needs, uh, a question was raised earlier as, as to what is the definition for that. Um, I think, of course, uh, the particular context of First Nations claims uh, will have to be uh, taken into account. Uh, their base, the basic needs of First Nations will not be the same necessarily of uh, other communities. Um, in our factum, we have uh, included, and that's at footnote uh, 79, uh, certain cases, including of this court, which deal with the definition of what is a basic necessity, the case of Finlay, um, where uh, there was a, a quote from a, the legislation applicable in this case, where basic necessities was defined as things, goods, and services that are essential to a person's health and well-being. I think we agree that that's the operating uh, definition, but of course, uh, based on the facts of each case, it will be up to judges to determine what our basic needs. Sure, sorry, I have one more question, then I'll leave you alone. I, I do not understand why, in the face of an affidavit from Ms. Anderson, and that's at tab 7B of Alberta, she sets out three paragraphs that deal specifically with COVID. Now, Justice Rowe has been commenting about, you know, sort of projecting and this and that. I mean, if we could have projected COVID, um, you know, we'd all be the wiser and we'd all be the healthier. None of us could. And certainly this Indigenous band could not. Now look at paragraphs 6, 7, and 8 to see the disruption, the fear, and, the, and people overcrowding, the very kinds of things, you know, not having clean water, the very kinds of things that, as he said, the people are terrified. They're terrified. They need extra funding to live. They need this. Where is that ever taken into account by the Court of Appeal? Or at least saying, you know what, this is fresh evidence. We don't have the details of how much this is, but we think this should go back for further consideration in light of something that when the original order was made was not on the horizon. Suddenly now we are facing a crisis of huge proportions which no one could have predicted and the Court of Appeal says, oh, I recognize, we recognize these affidavits. I, I find it quite frankly astounding. I mean, was this, was this a central issue at the hearing at the Court of Appeal? We were um, about two and a half months into COVID at that point. I mean, was this was this kind of front and center at, in submission? Um, I'll, I don't believe that it was. Um, I think I think what's important here in this case is that the argument and uh, this applies not just to the evidence that was presented on appeal. It's the evidence generally that was presented before the judge. Is that when it talks about these these challenges, these basic needs, and they're not denied, is that they're presented in the abstract. Um, without, of course, relating this to the important issue of whether, uh, if and to what extent, uh, current government funding is insufficient to address those things. And, of course, uh, the court can, of course, it's not into evidence, but the, 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 the funding that is provided by gov both governments is recurring and has continued. Uh, through uh, the period, uh, through all the, the, the relevant period in this litigation. Of course, um, I, I, the point is well taken, Mr. Justice Moldaver, but it hasn't been a central uh, consideration or, or, or raised at the hearing, I don't believe. I think it's important to 
keep in mind that um, there was opportunity to uh, file additional evidence from, from both sides. And I think the record uh, which the court has before it uh, today is the record that was uh, offered by the parties uh, at the Court of Appeal level. Now, if I may, um, since there's only uh, so little time, um, if I may just deal with uh, our point B about the, uh, our point that the test shouldn't uh, be changed. I've already talked a little bit about that in response to Mr. Justice Gazir. Um, I think uh, if I can just pick out a few points, um, perhaps uh, uh, to, to begin with on reconciliation. Um, as the court has, has seen in our factum, our position is that um, reconciliation is a certain and important consideration. Um, this court has said recently in Washanut that uh, it's the fundamental objective of Aboriginal law. Our position, as you've seen, is that it doesn't necessarily lead uh, or, or imperatively require a change to the test, but it certainly is something that can be considered by a judge in applying the test and certainly consistent with reconciliation and, these and this court's admonition uh, that uh, the Aboriginal perspective needs to be taken into account. Uh, of course, that uh, may mean that uh, to the extent that there are uh, relevant considerations or contextual elements that are being raised by an applicant, reconciliation would require that those uh, be considered. Uh, perhaps a, another point on, on access to justice, since this was raised uh, Excuse by me, some of the interviewers. Maître Joyal, sorry to interrupt you, and you, as you say, you have so little time. Can, can we, is it possible to connect Justice Muldaver's comment about the, the false binary in paragraph 28 between basic necessities and community infrastructure that you recognized was a little bit of crude geography there to, to make that distinction to reconciliation. I mean, there's a paradox in, in these kind of cases in that the, the merit of the claim, the claim itself is, the, is also a cause of the impecuniosity. I mean, it, I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if we should recognize that and, and take up Justice Muldaver's point and say that that distinction should be reviewed in light of the the ambitions of Section 35. I, I, I think that's a fair point. I, I think, and, and the court will have seen what our position is on this, I, 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 it's a fair point to raise that um, the bands are suing for uh, certain issues uh, which are connected to uh, the lack of funds. I think that's understood. Whether that should lead to a change of the test, we say that that's not necessary. These elements uh, certainly, uh, uh, in a general sense, are valid, and certainly they can be considered under the other branches of the test. I think the way that you formulated, Mr. Jessica very well could be an argument being raised under the public importance branch of the test. Um, but I must uh, point out that in our, in our respectful submission, Although the importance of reconciliation can't be doubted, it has to be balanced uh, with other important principles that this court uh, has relied on. Um, I think, of course, as you know, in terms of uh, the test for advanced costs, the court should always uh, keep in mind that ultimately, especially where the Crown is a defendant, that uh, they implicate the expenditure of public funds. And these things have to be put into balance. 
not to say that the point you're making uh, should never be taken into account, but as we've said, it's perhaps be more, better appreciated under the other branches of the test. I just say I, I tend to agree in a way, except that they're all interrelated, it seems to me. Uh, we're impecunious in part because of the way you treated us, government, and that's why we are bringing this uh, action. Um, then you combine that with a first before you even get to impecuniosity, what are the merits? Does this thing, does this potential action uh, have sufficient merit? Um, and so to me, they're interrelated. And if it has sufficient merit, and the government was at least in part responsible for impecuniosity or their inability to be self-sufficient and, 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 you know, make their own money and keep their own funds and so on. Why, why isn't that a, a factor? I mean, why isn't it an important factor? Um, I think, as, a, as I said, I, I think, generally speaking, it's better appreciated under the public importance branch. I think what the problem with, uh, in, at least theoretically, with this kind of, of an argument is that if you accept that, then eventually it will apply in each and every case and eventually it will have become a change to the test in the sense that it will uh, morph into a presumption of impecuniosity and i think uh, that should be avoided the uh, cost decisions are discretionary the uh, it's always going to be a case-by-case -case assessment um, so and, and to response to respond to a point made by justice uh, jamal it's it's not an accounting exercise that the that the court uh, has engaged in in this case. It was indeed a normative exercise in the sense that it, the court of appeal was unsatisfied with the way that the test was applied, and the court of appeal insisted on a more robust approach to how uh, issues of needs, especially in a context such as th as this one, need to be considered. Um, uh, but ultimately, the assessment of impecuniosity must be grounded on the facts of each case. And yes, this will include uh, financial statements and of course projections about uh, uh, identification of needs and projections about how these needs are supposed to be funded. I see my time has run out. Unless there's any questions, uh, those will be my submissions right. today. Thank you very much. Edward Cochrane. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General of British Columbia intervenes in this appeal to make three points. First, that the financial needs branch of the advanced cost test should, be, should ask not whether there are any funds available, as the Alberta Court of Appeal did, but rather whether an applicant genuinely cannot, without undue hardship, afford to pay for the litigation. Second, that the financial needs branch of the advanced cost test must remain an evidence-based inquiry focused on the applicant. And third, that the Crown Indigenous relationship is a relevant consideration at the public importance branch of the test, not the financial means branch. British Columbia first submits that the undue hardship standard that is developed in the court fees context following this court's decision in trial lawyers should also be applied at the financial means branch of the advanced cost test. As trial lawyers explains, the point of undue hardship is reached when a litigant must sacrifice reasonable expenses in order to bring a claim. This provides a more liberal and flexible standard than asking whether an applicant has any funds available. 
and we say it's an equally useful measure of financial means where an applicant seeks advanced costs as where the applicant seeks a waiver of court fees, which is itself a form of partial advanced costs award, given that hearing fees are recoverable as disbursements as a component of a cost assessment. Adopting the undue hardship standard in the context of advanced costs would promote consistency in the law by harmonizing the financial means component of the advanced costs and fee waiver tests. This is logical given the interplay between fee waiver and advanced costs. And I know that my friend Council for Canada disagrees with me on this point, but I would point out that both advanced costs and fee waivers support access to justice. As I've just said, a fee waiver is in effect a form of partial advanced costs award. Both tests include a merits component and both decisions include discretion. In trial lawyers, this court struck down the prior version of BC's fee waiver rule, which required an applicant to be impoverished in order to obtain a waiver, holding that setting the bar so high created a barrier to access to justice for those who are not impoverished, but nonetheless could not afford to pay hearing fees without undue hardship. Asking whether an applicant has any funds available, as the Court of Appeal did here, sets an equally high bar as the impoverished standard that was struck down in trial lawyers. While care must be taken not to inadvertently create what this court described in Little Sisters as a court-managed funding program, and Mr. Justice Rowe, you alluded to this point this morning as well, we note that trial lawyers makes clear that a more liberal standard is appropriate where a financial means test may impact access to justice. And as this court itself noted in Okanagan, one of the primary purposes of advanced costs award in public interest litigation is ensuring that ordinary citizens will have access to the courts to determine their constitutional rights and other issues of broad social significance. The flexibility of the undue hardship standard flows from the fact that reasonableness lies at its heart. As I noted a moment ago, it requires that fees not be set so high that a litigant must sacrifice reasonable expenses in order to bring a claim. This is a more helpful standard than the distinction that the Court of Appeal here attempted to draw between basic necessities and discretionary spending on desirable improvements. And members of the bench highlighted some of these issues in their questions of Council for Canada just a few moments ago in highlighting the issues with time scale in terms of short-term or basic necessities. We say that we would disagree with the Court of Appeal's rejection of reasonableness as a component of this analysis as a reasonableness analysis would avoid those sorts of timescale issues. Ms. Coughlin, I would point you in particular you, to paragraph 26. Ms. Cochran, could I ask you a question that uh, Justice Kazira posed uh, a few minutes earlier, and that is whether, in your view, um, Little Sisters raised the threshold from uh, Okanagan, and uh, whether what you're proposing, would, would, it, would, it, would it be higher than uh, little, uh, higher than Okanagan, or is it lower than Okanagan, or where, where does what you're proposing, so what happened with? Uh... It's an important question, and I think that conceptualizing this as a spectrum might be a useful way of looking at it. I view what we're proposing in terms of applying an undue hardship with a reasonableness analysis lying at its core as being consistent with this court's judgment in, in Okanagan and Little Sisters. I think that Okanagan and Little Sisters could be read as being consistent, although there's also a risk that some of the language that Justice Kazir pointed to in Little Sisters could be pointed to as raising the bar. And I think that that's what the Alberta Court of Appeal did. And I would submit that the Alberta Court of Appeal could be interpreted as having raised the bar even higher by 
citing any funds available as being the relevant measure for the, for the financial means branch of the advanced cost test. What we're suggesting in terms of adopting the undue hardship analysis that developed in the court fees context is we say not only consistent with the court fees jurisprudence or the waiver of court fees jurisprudence, but we'd be consistent with this court's reasons in Okanagan and Little Sisters and would in that way harmonize the law and the financial means standards. What falls May within I follow the up on that, please? I, I, I'm sort of running ahead in terms of, you say that the relationship between uh, the Crown Indigenous uh, uh, relationship needs to be taken into account, but only at the public importance branch. It, it would seem, uh, I would ask you why it has to be a choice. Why can't it be at the uh, stage of assessing impecuniosity? And doesn't your argument about the special relationship of the Crown actually um, support your suggestion that undue hardship should be the test? Well, to answer your first question, Madam Justice Martin, the, the courts, I think, in Okanagan and Little Sisters, as well as in Kuro more recently, made clear that there are three distinct branches to the advanced cost test, and that each of those is necessary and that neither of them on their own is sufficient. I think the court also made clear, and this has been made clear as well in the lower court jurisprudence following Okanagan or interpreting and applying Okanagan, is that the financial means branch of the test should be focused on financial factors, things like balance sheets, things like looking at the applicant's own financial circumstances based on the evidence of their efforts to raise funds of what funds they have available, um, as well as efforts to borrow funds those are all financial factors. We would submit that the Crown Indigenous relationship, which British Columbia recognizes as being important and special, is so special, in fact, that it shouldn't be put together with those financial fact factors, but that it should be recognized within the public importance branch. And Courts have done that in numerous examples of cases that we've cited, and I'd refer you here to paragraph 39 of our factum, where courts have held that the Crown Indigenous relationship is appropriately considered under the public importance branch with respect, for example, to the duty to consult, the application of provincial legislation to Aboriginal title land, as in the Chilcotin case, as well as an entreaty interpretation and reserve creation. The other reason why we suggest, and perhaps most importantly, that the Crown Indigenous relationship should be considered at the public importance stage of the test is that it ensures that these important principles are considered in all cases. And that's because this court explained in Little Sisters that the question of impecuniosity will not even arise where a case is not otherwise special enough to merit this exceptional award. Considering the Crown Indigenous relationship within the public importance branch rather than the financial means branch, therefore places these principles at the forefront of the analysis. Can, can I ask you, if undue hardship means that a judge needs to um, review the reasonableness of a priority or the reasonableness of, 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 a, of, a, of a need, what kind of um, guidance is there on determining what's reasonable? That's not the I mean, usually those kinds of decisions of spending priorities are taken by governments and what kind of, um, I guess, standards or parameters or assistance would you suggest are appropriate for a judge to make the determination of whether it's a reasonable uh, spending priority? 
Well, Justice Karakatsanis, I think that's in part why this is a discretionary decision of, of trial judges and why, why there is discretion here. Um, but I would point as well to the body of case law that's developed already in the court fees context, where in applying the, the reasonableness component of the undue hardship standard, courts have done just that and successfully in applying um, in applying this court's judgment in trial lawyers. And I think that it's instructive to look at those cases. Um, I would also point out that I think that it's a more helpful and useful standard than the exercise that the Alberta Court of Appeal attempted to do here in terms of distinguishing between um, preferable spending and basic necessities. And particularly where an applicant is an Indigenous government, I think that there's flexibility in that undue hardship standard and the reasonableness which lies at its core um, that can be more readily applied to Indigenous Section 35 applicants in a way that treats them as governments rather than individuals. I mean, you, 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 you disparage how the Alberta Court of Appeal dealt with this, but I'm not sure that in substance you're doing much different. Right. Expenses needed to meet Indigenous communities' basic needs of so drinking water, housing, are more likely under your model to be considered reasonable than those less directly connected to basic necessities, community centres, general community products, right, projects. I'm taking that directly from your factum. I mean, how in that, how is that substantively different as opposed to, say, I, I, a difference in tone or vibe? But how is it substantively different than what the Court of Appeal said? I see that I'm out of time, but if I might have a sure. moment um, to, to respond to that. I agree that in the end result, we might get to the same place in terms of outcome. And we've acknowledged in our factum that things that are basic necessities, or can be classified as basic necessities, may well um, or more likely to be considered to be reasonableness or to meet that measure. But we say that reasonableness analysis is a more flexible standard and then applying any funds available, which could be interpreted as not only setting a higher bar, but requires, requires a court or a, a, somebody hearing a, an advanced cost application to undertake the sort of classification exercise that members of the bench just struggled with in questioning Council for Canada as to the time horizon for an expense, um, and in particular as to considering whether or not an applicant for advanced costs who's an organization or an Indigenous government undertaking Section 35 litigation um, is faced with something that's a basic necessity when that standard might be more easy to apply to an individual applicant who's charged with looking out for their own personal interest as opposed to their community's public interest. Thank and I think much. that the Kiwaden case, which we've included at tab two of our condensed book, also provides a useful illustration of how concepts of undue hardship and reasonableness have already taken root in the existing advanced cost jurisprudence, particularly in the context of Indigenous applicants. And I direct you in particular to paragraph 79 and 83 to 84 Thank of you. that decision. Thank you very much. Ms. Brooks, any reply? Thank you, uh, Chief Justice and Justices. I thought maybe in my reply what I'd do is put a bit sharper clarity around the issue of costs. Um, and I, I just want to make clear that it's not our position um, that these costs uh, of what the, the expenses and obligations that the nation has to meet the needs of its community are somehow broadly or abstractly um, identified. In fact, it is our position that they're very clearly identified in the record, in particular reference to the two funds that the case management judge identified as being sort of theoretically available. And we see that 
very specifically in the actual balance or the, the actual income statements for these funds. So for example, in the IAR fund, we see at tab five of our condensed brief, all the expenses that are being used. So really it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about available funds, it's a snapshot of sort of the gross revenue that the nation has. And these funds have attached to them very concrete and specific expenses. They are being used. So I don't agree with my friend from Alberta who says that they're not currently being used, that there's funds sitting there not currently being used. These funds are being used um, on a daily basis, and that's in particular reference to the AIR fund, which is a fund primarily for consultation. And that consultation is very expensive for the First Nation engage, and we see that in the evidence. And the band manager talks about half that, how they have to engage outside professionals because they don't have the internal capacity to do these uh, impact assessments that they need to do, which are very sophisticated to understand how are these projects impacting their rights. And of course, there's also the, the deep irony here of, 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 the, um, of the Court of Appeal just assuming that these funds are available to fund litigation when these are the very funds that they need to use to identify the impacts that give rise to the underlying litigation. So the funds are being used. We can clearly see the expenses that are associated with them. Same with the Ottawa Trust. What we see there, in fact, is the nation has to make requests to withdraw those funds year after year, and that it does so to cover the shortfalls. And yes, they are for salaries, and yes, they are for urgent infrastructure repairs. And what we see from the nation's expenses is that the salaries is the significant cost to run these programs. They have to pay people. So by making these funds divertible to the litigation or saying they must be used for the litigation, the nation has to reduce its operations. It can't pay people. And we see that year after year, it needs to use these monies. That leads to the Heritage Trust because the nation recognizes that it's in this chronic shortfall, vicious cycle where it needs to access capital to pay for the programs. It got a bit of money from the IBAs as a result of participating in consultation. It puts it in a Heritage Trust and it says, we're gonna use the revenue generated to address this chronic ongoing shortfall. If you, take away the, if you take away the consultation fund, you take away the ability of the nation to participate in consultation. If they can't participate in consultation, among other serious problems, they can't raise the money they need to even put the money in the Heritage Trust. And it's that level of, of sort of complexity that really was overlooked by the Court of Appeal when the Court of Appeal just lumps the money together and says this is all available for litigation um, and it's not necessary to meet the other, what we say are clearly basic needs um, of the community. And I just also wanted to just close on the point of reconciliation and how it informs impecuniosity because we do think that is, it doesn't need to be something that is just dealt with, although it should be in the public importance and the special nature of the case. The way that re reconciliation informs impecuniosity is by taking into account the real lived experience of Indigenous people and the burdens that First Nation governments have in discharging their duties to their members, to the Crown, to third parties. Reconciliation means carefully looking at the record, assessing the actual constraints and the socioeconomic conditions. It means actually not setting a standard for impecuniosity that is so stringent that impoverished First Nations have no money at all uh, to bring litigation that are necessary for their treaty rights or to, uh, to provide for the basic needs of their community. Um, and that's, uh, that's all the points I wanted to make in reply. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all attorneys for your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.